It's Amanda Reyes, and you're back with another episode of the Made for TV Mayhem show. I just really have one sentence to say, and I feel like we could just close the episode. Just We don't even have to introduce my co-host. But I just want to let you know that it's another day, another blowjob. Now, some of you may <laughs> get that reference. Some of you may not. Some of you might be shocked. But that is from Go Ask Alice, which is one of the films we're talking about today. Not, obviously, the TV version of it, but the diary that Alice left. That's probably one of the most famous lines in the film and or in the book. And that's always what I think of when I think of Go Ask Alice. Because she is right. It's another day. It's another blowjob. So... Um, I feel like that encapsulates everything we're going to talk about tonight, <laughs> maybe. So our topic tonight is um, propaganda TV movies, and we're going to be talking about the infamous Go Ask Alice and the other infamous uh, 1982, I guess it's a drama fantasy called Mazes and Monsters starring Tom Hanks. Um, and uh, I don't have much else to say. Sorry, I've been really frazzled for like six weeks. I know we've been gone for a while, but we did those last two episodes back to back, so I kind of didn't feel so bad about leaving things hanging, and then I realized I kind of forgot how to podcast. So you'll have to forgive me if um, I have some hiccups tonight. But So let me introduce my co-hosts because they know what they're doing. So hey, Dan, what's up? Call me Treylocks. Ninth level Rantharian. I'm the keeper of the staff of David and the shining dingus of Calhoun. I'm also a drug addict <laughs> and an idiot. Wait a minute, you're the shining dingus of Rory Calhoun? Did I get that right? <laughs> Someone's Calhoun. I just, it's Calhoun. Are you the, what is the guy's name? Is he the controller of the maze? What was his character call himself? The maze? It's like the, the maze controller or something. I didn't actually write, it would be the dungeon master if it were Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, but yeah. I, I forget what they, I think it's like I am the controller of the maze. And so, yeah, that's, so you can be the controller of the maze here and I'll be Treylock's uh, keeper of the shining dingus of Calhoun. Okay, that's good. I think I can handle that. And the keeper of the staff of David. Don't forget that too. Oh my gosh. I keep David's staff. I'm married to him, so <laughs> just so we're clear. <laughs> okay. Um, Nate, how are you? I'm good, and I don't know anything about Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> except what I learned from uh, the rip-off uh, game in Mazes & Monsters. That's all you need to know. Is that really cute guys play it? And you can take it into the tunnels and have a really good time with it. And you can have plastic skeletons come with you. That's pretty much all I learned about oh, the yeah. game while I was watching it. Um, yeah, so those are our two films tonight. Um, what I wanted to do, this is going to be a whole night of me confessing all the things I dreamed of doing while I had six weeks to plan and couldn't get to. I ordered The Dungeon Master, which is the book about the true story behind Mazes and Monsters. I also ordered Rona Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters, which is the book that was uh, obviously adapted into the TV film, which was inspired by The Dungeon Master. And I finally bought Go Ask Alice, which is something I've been wanting to read since I was like 15 and just never have. And I've read three pages of The Dungeon Master. 
And that's it. So <laughs> I really wanted to dive into propaganda TV movies and how these things worked to sort of train our brains into things. Um, but I think you guys are pretty adept at this stuff, too. So we'll just have a conversation about it. I do have a little bit of background on both um, books. And so we'll do all that. But I'm just going to let Dan get started because to be perfectly honest, I feel really strange right now. So I think oh, okay. <laughs> I feel like I've, this is my first time podcasting. It's so weird. You you haven't been going into someone else's fridge and drinking their half-drunk uh, bottles of soda pop, have you? I haven't. And who does that? I mean... That's... Well, yeah. That's going to be a point of, point of contention I have with Go Ask Alice and her intelligence level later yeah, on in this movie. Yeah. Well, you know, just a spoiler. I, I, I love both of these films. Um, but I agree that there are some moments in Alice where you're like, um, what? So... <laughs> but then there's also shoeless baby hookers to make up for it. So... Sure, true, true. true. <laughs> so take it away, Dan. Okay. Um, uh, to, to me, uh, Go Ask Alice is, it's sort of, it's not quite vignettes, but it's sort of in big segments. And the movie begins with a, a little scroll that says, this is the authentic diary of a 15-year-old teenage girl whose um, mother is Julie Adams and whose father is William Shatner. It doesn't say that, but that's that's what's, what goes on in it. And it's Alice, and Alice is, you know, uh, 15-year-old, blonde, all-American gal kind of thing, except she's very she's very sort of neurotic. She feels very unpopular. She feels oh. very alone. She's worrying about her weight all the time. She, I guess that's what we all, you know, we're all, most of us are pretty awful when we're 15 in that way. Sure. Um, but, but, and her and her family are moving to a new town where her dad's going to be like the head dean, the assistant dean or something at the high school or... It's a or, college, I, I think. Believe. It's, is it a well? She's yeah. only fifteen. She is, but I think she's dating the teacher's aide at the college. Okay. Uh, as the film progresses, you know that kind of straight guy that she meets that works for her oh, dad. Okay, all right. So she's going. I thought they were at the same place because no. there's a scene li- later on where she goes to his office. Yes, yeah, she does. But she's also dating um, that guy that's in college. Don't forget, and the, and he knows all about the dad, played by William Shatner, knows all about the guy she's dating and his grades. Okay, so so she's going to a, a new high school in this town where her dad's going to be the dean at the local college, and uh, she's very worried uh, that she's not going to have any friends. It's going to be rotten, and it takes her a while, but she makes a friend, a friend Beth, and Beth and her sit around. And they talk about boys, and they talk about losing weight, and they talk about <laughs> life in general, it's and best. it's great. It's the best, and uh, but she's still she's still a little kind of lost, and her parents are uh, kind of vague, you know. When it's it's clear that she needs, you know, just more love and attention, they just kind of like will say stuff like, "Come on, Alice, you can do it." Well, they don't quite say that, but you know that kind of thing. And her brother's just this little kid running around, um, who actually turns out to be pretty perceptive as the film goes along. Yeah. But uh, the sort of first segment of the movie ends with her meeting up with a fellow classmate who invites her to a party. She goes to the party, and it's a pretty swinging, not in the way you're thinking, but a swinging high school sort of party. And she ends up uh, getting uh, drugged. Uh, I, I'm imagining it's LSD. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure on my drugs, but some sort of acid. And there's, basically there's a guy there who's like, I'm going to be here with you through your trip and lead you through it. And at first she's very worried about it, but then she loves it. <laughs> and we have our first winner of the evening. What's happening? Don't worry, just relax. I feel very strange. I feel 
You're really sick. Now while I'm here, just let it happen. trying to poison me. No, no, they aren't. Enjoy it. You're going to have a beautiful trip. I promise. But that's why I didn't get any. So I could take care of you. And we go into the sort of second segment of the movie, movie where she, she becomes very much sort of a hippie gal, and she's just doing drugs all the time, and her, her grades are falling, and she's stealing her parents' pills. And her parents, again, seem a little clueless as to what's going on, although her brother is looking at her like, you're screwed up. Something's going wrong there. And she mostly just spends all her time with her friend and her boyfriend and her friend's boyfriend, some other folks, just doing drugs and sitting around. And then oh, and one day, and the one monthly, of their... the monthly pregnancy scares. Remember, she mentioned the monthly. That? Yes, <laughs> yeah, the monthly pregnancy scares. Oh my god! Um, and then she, and at one point, um, one of their friends who has been dealing and sp- specifically dealing to grade school kids is arrested. And so Alice and her friend, and I didn't take down her friend's name, and I'm sorry about that, um, Al- because at one point I thought they were the same person. They looked so similar they to do. me They do. They wear the same hats and everything. They become sort yes. of twins of each other. Yeah, and and they say, yeah, to, to the guys who are, like, wasted all the time, we'll help you deal. And so there's this great scene with Alice, like, giving pills to, like, a 10-year-old or something. I forget. Like, he said fifth grade or something, I think something he said like he was that, in. yeah. Yeah, and... And then what but what happens then, unfortunately, takes a turn for the worse around 30 minutes in. She goes home and she finds um, her boyfriend. I didn't actually quite know what was going on. Her boyfriend is with another gal, but I saw a guy in the end. Yeah, or that's actually that? that's actually a really controversial scene. And when IMDb used to have message okay. boards, um, after I saw Go Ask Alice for the first time a couple years ago when I wrote about it for Are You in the House Alone, um, there was a whole conversation about that scene because it does... I, I'm under the impression that it's two guys with two girls having okay. sex in the same room, probably mm-hmm. heterosexual sex, but it's never made clear that that's yes. what they're doing. And it's really interesting. So this movie, uh, imagery-wise, and I know we'll get to the one image that's insane, but like um, visually, this film really pulls no punches in terms of its depiction of like the depths that some people go. Not that I'm saying that having sex with two couples in a room together is the depths of depravity, but it does things that TV movies don't normally do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is one of the things it does is it plays uh, sort of tricks with our mind with, um, well, first of all, it may indicate that there's an orgy or it may indicate yes. that it's a same sex relationship, which you didn't really see on TV back then either. Yes. Or, or just, you know, two couples having sex in the same room, which again is also really controversial mm. for television. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so Alice sees whatever it is that's going on going on. And she uh, she grabs she grabs a bunch of the deal, the cash that they've been dealing, takes off and gets her friend who looks a lot like her. They hop on a bus and they run away from home and they say they kind of as they're running away, they say, you know, we don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but we have to get off the drugs. Then almost immediately it cuts to Alice sleeping under a very dirty blanket on a picnic table in the middle of a park. And she cannot remember how she got there. She cannot remember what's going on. And Mackenzie Phillips shows up as like the 14-year-old prostitute. And you know, at the moment you see Mackenzie Phillips, yeah, you're on the drugs and you've been on it for some time. And so Alice is like completely, whoo, and she spends the next batch of time basically prostituting herself. Where's Chris? You got anything? 
people are smile and know any Chris. You got any efforts left? I don't know you. What's the matter? You're in a blackout. I brought you here. Who are you? I'm Doris. They've been all over. For how long? Forever. What happened to the music? The whole rally was canceled, remember? Somebody must have really sipped you a bad pill. Yeah, well... I wish they'd do it again. Yeah. Well, I figured there'd be a few cats left to time me off. Dying. Hey, uh, there's gotta be some place to crash around here, right? Yeah, there's this creep at the Digger's Cafe. So he'll give you some bread to go home with him. So why don't you... Try it. Says baby hookers turn him on. Been making it longer than he has. How old are you? You know, 14. Hey, uh, I gotta go now. I'll see you. Wait, wait, don't you want this? What are you writing? I don't remember. Yeah, well, I bet it's really far out stuff. See you later on. They're both barefoot. Like, yes. they're, you know, like, so, so Mackenzie Phillips plays the baby hooker. She actually calls herself the baby hooker. And, and she's not, I don't believe she's 14. I believe she says she's 14, but she's 12. Mm -hmm. That's my impression, because okay. she looks so young. And mm -hmm. and then and she really wants to hang out with Alice, but Alice doesn't know who she is. Like she doesn't remember anything, and so it becomes this really crazy, like whatever. And you think that would be her wake up call, but she just goes and like keeps going down that path. And the thing that like is so aesthetically interesting is like it's not aesthetically interesting. I don't know what the word I want to use is, but it's like it's so horrifying because she's barefoot by this point, and mm -hmm. she's trashed. And she's eating stuff out of the garbage. Yeah. Do you remember she picks up that sandwich out of the garbage and yeah. she just sits yeah. on the garbage can and then she's like, Dear diary. Yes. And it's horrible. She still keeps the diary. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a brief moment too where we get to see they, they mention this couple who will, will feed them but make them do weird things. And there's a brief moment where you see what the couple do. And it's it's one of those things where it's not the weirdest thing you'll ever see, but it's definitely very, very odd. And I, I actually watched it like twice. I was like, did I just see that? Because it happens very quickly, like in flashes. It's and so... like, did I just well, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's um I guess we can go into it a little bit later. We'll leave people hanging for okay. what exactly the couple <laughs> do. Okay. But so so she's just going downhill, it's getting bad, and she winds up at sort of like a mission church one evening, and Father Andy Griffith is there. And uh, they have a long discussion, and he's sort of very understanding. He's listening to her, but you you can tell he sort of heard everything she said uh, a thousand times before. And he actually ends up sort of getting her diary and finding her phone number in it, calling her family, and just leaving the phone hanging and saying, "Here." Alice runs to the phone. She gets on the phone. Hooray! We go to the next sort of segment of the film, and she's back home, and she's kind of dried out a bit, and she's trying to do her best to uh, stay clean. Um, but of course, the unfortunate thing is you learn that like 
Beth, her her old friend, knows that she was using drugs, so she's not her friend anymore. Beth won't talk to Alice anymore. Of course, Alice wasn't actually talking to Beth when she got on the drugs, so I guess it goes both ways there. Um, and everyone who believed that, uh, who, who knew that you were dealing or doing drugs, is and in, is after you for drugs. In fact, the moment she arrives, the director of Never Cry Wolf and Trick or Treat goes to her <laughs> locker right. and says, "Do you have any drugs?" And he said, "Get out of here. Go go." Run with the wolves naked. Did he direct Never Cry Wolf? I forget that now I that I said that he just started. But it sounds like he did. But I, I know he directed so. Trick or Treat, and I know he's in American yeah. Graffiti, and he Definitely, did a, yeah. another TV movie called Cotton Candy. Around the same time, yeah, yeah. And so it, it becomes like, no, I'm not dealing. And this one gal keeps sort of giving her drugs. And 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 it becomes this this un, unpleasant series of scenes where um uh the the people who are all on drugs are kind of they're calling her a fink and they're kind of threatening her brother through her and they're threatening her father through her they got upset because jan who's the girl that i guess is passing out the papers and gives her the pills she yeah. has like a freak out and then she yes. goes to where she used to babysit and mm-hmm. and alice is like i have to call the police on you because you're gonna hurt this baby and you're terrifying me and then afterwards like everything just like she has nobody t- to be with because the straight kids don't trust her and the I don't know what you call the not straight kids. Uh, they don't. They don't. Or whatever. They don't yeah. trust her either, right? So like, and yeah. they've decided to make her life hell, and it's it's like it's very upsetting. And yeah, and she she's she's really got nowhere to go, and she's she's worried going to school every day. Now she kind of makes friends a bit with that teacher's aide we mentioned earlier, who works with her father, who is as straight as can be. He is Mister Super White Bread. <laughs> Right there. He's just, he doesn't well, seem like he's ever done anything wrong in his life. He already uh, has a receding hairline. He's like 19. That's how straight he that's is. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's that's, already that's, like that's an old true. guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and what happens then, and this is around where I'll stop, is um, uh, so sort of the threats from the stoner kids are getting worse, and Alice is getting very shaky, and she she's going to spend a weekend babysitting. I believe it's the same location where her friend freaked out at yeah, her. Yeah, I think like the so. same set. And she's just going to this, this family is gone, and she's baby, taking care of this baby, and she's warming up the bottle with the formula, and there's like a half-drunk bottle of soda pop in the, in the fridge. So she cracks it open, and she starts drinking that as she's feeding the baby. Someone has put LSD in the pop, and she has the mother of all freakouts in this house alone with a baby i'm gonna leave it right there we'll probably spoil what happens but that's a good spot as any to stop yeah that's the part where like it's so interesting because when i watched it last weekend it was the second time i'd ever seen it since i a couple years before and but that scene in my mind i thought they showed more than they do Mm. because it's Mm -hmm. it's so upsetting that like I just started imagining, I guess, what happened, and then it kind of took over my imagination so intensely that I believe that that scene <laughs> is in the film, but yeah. it's really not, and I'm really grateful for that. Because um, yeah. the aftermath is is ridiculously upsetting as it is, so I, didn't, I don't necessarily need to see it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, that's probably the most harrowing moment in the film for me, if I had to pick one harrowing moment. Um, there's several. Um, so let me just ask you guys, Dan, had you ever seen this before? I uh, no, I hadn't. No, I hadn't. Uh, there are bits I, I thought worked really well. And there are some, um, that I didn't think worked really well. Um, I, I hate to jump to this point, but one of the spots that really, uh, there were occasional moments, uh, where I thought, um, now I've 
you know, I, I've been in high school and such, but I, 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 I've never done drugs. Um, but there were moments in it that felt like this is written by like a 60 year old woman who's never been near a teen in her life. I thought that there were certain moments where I felt it, but then there were other moments where I thought, okay, this feels like this could be more authentic. And, you know, you can see the message it's trying to say, which is never, never, never do drugs. Right. Um, so, so when I watched it, it was a mixed, it, it, one of the tricky things was that Alice starts off sort of complaining a lot. She's very bland. And then when she gets on the drugs, on the, on the drugs, now I sound like a 60 year old woman. <laughs> uh, when, when, she, when she gets turned on drugs, she, she becomes boring. And then the only moment where she becomes really sort of interesting to me is when she's trying to figure out how to sort of you know, get around all these people who are sort of coming after her when she returns. And then right at the very end, not the very end, which I'm going to mention slightly in a moment, but so it was sort of like for about 45 minutes of the 75 minutes of the movie, Alice was just like this blank space in the middle of the film, just doing whatever the film uh, had her do next. Right. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until like the, the baby, the babysitter scene with the friend going crazy or the, the freak out and the aftermath of that, where I was like really on board. But by that point I was, I was growing slightly bored with it and thought but, how much more of this can I watch? But then Ruth Roman showed up and you're like, Hey, that's the lady from the baby. That's true. That is, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah. And, and, and I will say, and the thing that kind of if I, I don't normally do like out of tens, but if I had to do out of 10, I was probably at s- seven out of 10 before the very end. Then when the very end hit, I think I went to about five. Wow. Because you mean the very, very the, end, the very, very, I don't okay. know if we should we'll, so, we'll talk it. about it. We'll talk. Well, I mean, this book okay. is really famous. Everybody knows what happens to Alice and we'll, yes. we'll, we'll go into it. And I didn't actually make notes about the story about the book, but I will talk mm. about it because I'm sort of familiar okay. with the history of it. Um, uh, but do you mind if I leave it there and ask Nate? Or do you have anything else you want oh, to add? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll probably think of something in a minute. Okay, I'm sure you will, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> I trust oh, yeah. you for that. That's why you're here. Um, Nate, yeah. had you seen this before? No, I'd never even heard of it. You never heard of it? Oh my god, what did no, you No, I'd never heard of this movie. Oh my god, what did you think of it? I might lean probably towards what Dan was saying. Um, I kind of felt that for... Like, the first half of the movie, I, I felt like I was maybe a little bit bored with it, but it did pick up in the second half. Um, although, like Dan, I, the rating dropped for me with the very, very ending. I mean, I I just felt like it was so abrupt, and it just felt really mishandled. I think the book, for, I read the story, I read up on the book itself, and I think it probably did a, a much better job at, at, you know, like conveying the ending itself. Whereas the movie, it just feels so, you know, you think one thing and then suddenly it's like, Oh no, 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 this is what really happened. I mean, it just, it just came out of nowhere for me, I guess. Um, although, I mean, it, it got an extra two points just for having Ruth Roman in it. As soon as I heard her <laughs> voice, I was just, I was thinking about her and, you know, Anjanette Comer getting in that little <laughs> battle of words on the front porch and the baby. I love that movie, by the way, but that's oh, a different yeah. movie oh, yeah. altogether. So many people think that that's a TV movie, too. And I think that's so interesting because it kind of feels like a TV movie because you don't really see anything. But on what planet would that ever yeah. air on network TV? <laughs> no, <laughs> it would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I almost wish it would have in some way because it would have been fun to discuss. 
Yeah, um, I, well, me too. Yeah, it would be great. Well, maybe one day we'll do like a special. It should have been. It looks like a TV movie, but it's not. Because sh- there's a couple. Oh, yeah. Made by, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple. That would be fun. So that's interesting um, because. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going, Nate. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I was just going to say that. I think it was interesting to me all the, you know, the high profile actors that are in this yeah. movie. I didn't even recognize William Shatner. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was a while before I realized that's who that was. I mean, obviously, Ruth Roman and Andy Griffith, I recognize them immediately just because, you know, I mean, they pretty much look like themselves. Right. But, um, I, yeah, I mean, as far as this movie goes, um, I would be really interested to read the book because from what I've read, it said that uh, the movie, unfortunately, leaves a lot of stuff out that the book has. Um, storyline-wise, and it says that the book flows much better, and it yeah. actually seems, you know, it's, it's more seamless, whereas the movie sometimes feels like it, you know, jumps from one scene to the next, you know, and it doesn't transition very well sometimes. Because I got a little bit lost in some parts, I, I have to admit. Um, but just reading like, the plot synopsis of the book side-by-side side with it, I see, I saw exactly what they were doing. And um, I was just it's, – it's a frustrating film because, I mean, like Dan was saying, her little brother's so perceptive, but her parents are not. Mm. And I'm just thinking, like, how clueless are you getting here? I mean, when she starts acting different and everything, I mean, you got to suspect something. I don't know. The parents just seem so um, oblivious or There's, just in denial. I don't know. Denial There's that, was what I, how I approached it. There, there's that scene at the at her birthday party where she's like, her and her friends are all like yeah. sitting on the floor around the table, yeah. and they're all like, and they're clearly high as kites, and and the brother is looking at her like, holy crap, what's wrong with you? And William Shatner and Julie Adams are standing there going, come on, happy birthday, you're not too old to have a cake to you, and I'm thinking, are you really, really? Are you you're so exhausted? Like my my wife is the last of four children and she said by time her parents got to her she could do whatever she wanted because they were exhausted but yeah. Alice is their first kid she should I mean I know my parents like up until I left moved out of the house my parents were on me all the time by the time they got to my sister who was 13 years younger she could do whatever she wanted so so it's like they're too oblivious to me is is un- unfortunately I just from and my I- experience I think that, you know, I can understand where they're going with it. It's, you know, everybody needs to be aware of, you know, the changes in behaviors and and stuff like that. And I understood that, but I just didn't feel like the movie itself, um, I don't know. I just, uh, I didn't feel like it was handled as well as it maybe could have been. Um, I'm really glad I watched it, though. I definitely don't regret watching it whatsoever. I'm very happy that I saw it because I think that movies from, you know, this time frame that are, you know, more quote-unquote propaganda films, uh, it's really interesting to watch, you know, to to see how they approach subjects like, you know, drugs and stuff. Because, of course, in my, you know, teenage years, it was the 90s. So it was very much in the vein of those anti-drug commercials. You yeah. remember the ones like oh, yeah. the, the girl is, like, sunken in the chair and they say, you know, like, she can't talk, she can't even move or something like that. Um, and of course, the classic was, you know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs Beyond with drugs, the frying yeah. pan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the, you know, those kind of commercials. So I was actually really interested to see how they approached it in the early seventies. So um, I'm really glad that we picked this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be one that I would come back to very often, but uh, to say I would read the book. Mm-hmm. Well, when I'm done with my copy, I can I can chip it off. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's Are you reading it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, just is, oh go ahead I'm sorry 
Oh, I, I was just say, do you think now? Here, here's the thing: is when I got to the end, just the the way, like like Nate said, and like I sort of synopsized it. There are it really it does feel like it's in segments. Like she has that first trip, and then suddenly she's a full on drug addict. I was just gonna say, what the thing about the editing of this film that I really like is that it kind of drops you in her drug trip by making it sort of like bounce true, around. True. And so the whole point, I thought, when um, the director and the director came from documentaries originally. Um, this was his second TV movie, I think, um, is that I think that he wanted to sort of keep you sort of on the edge of your seat, not in a thriller way, but like in a way that like you can't get comfortable with what's happening in the movie because even Alice doesn't know what's happening, right? She's kind of an unreliable narrator is what I'm saying because it's her trip and she's talking about her own trip and, and her diary and her words. And so who knows what's really happening and, Actually, yeah. Yeah, and what she's saying happening. So to me, the movie felt sort of like, not like Christiane F. Christiane F. goes deep into like oh, heavy sure. duty drug addiction. That to me is like the best anti-drug movie I've ever seen. It's like watching real drug addicts. I think this film though is a minor Christiane F. in a lot of ways because of the editing. And that's my approach. And I kind of, I totally understand what you guys are saying. But, um, but I love this movie, so I'm going to defend it a little. But that's how I approached it. Oh, no. I, I was well. What I was going to say with with regards to I was I was just going to say do do you think do you think it would have worked better if they'd done it as two hours or would that have dragged it out too much too much misery? No, I think or... it's fine the way it is. I think okay. the problem is is it is so when I got Go Ask Alice in the Mail the other day I was surprised by how thick it was. I actually thought it was a much thinner book. So there is a lot of content mm-hmm. in there that probably didn't make it into the film. Plus, like that line I said another day another blowjob. Obviously, they had to excise sure. a lot of stuff. So when she's like. Her monthly pregnancy scares, and for the most part, her prostitution is very much off screen, and so yes, it has to or, be... at, or at a distance. Yeah, or... and which is good. I'm into that, but like, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, because it was it was pretty harrowing stuff that she was discussing. But like, I feel like I feel like the the movie had to sort of because of its medium being television, it had to really like cut things down. And so, 74 minutes is probably pretty good for what it needed to yeah. do. I think I think the the one moment that I do uh, actually well there were a couple of them sort of the way it jumps from bit to bit the one moment I do really like and I think works completely for me is when they're on the bus and then suddenly her friend is gone and she's on the picnic yeah. table and and Mac- Mackenzie Phillips is there I think to me that's the moment that really works because you're sitting there and you're like what's going on and wh- who are you we've been together like the past three days we were at a festival we and it's like what's going and you never get like sort of confirmation on was that actually what happened because she doesn't know when you're getting everything from her right and she doesn't remember so so there was a moment right and i think that that's kind of interesting the way they do that because then it immediately goes into her eating food out of the garbage cans prostituting herself and it just it just gets so weird so quickly that 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 kind of that 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 is one bit i really liked in there and then of course it ends with the scene with andy griffith which i will never argue with although i wish don Knotts had showed up as like a wacky chef or something like he could have like tripped the cake that would have been the best that would have been the best they missed out they missed out but uh, but yeah i kind of like the schizophrenic feel of the film and the first time i saw it i actually watched it like at two in the morning i had insomnia and i was writing the book and it was one of the movies I'd put down on the list of things to watch. And so I, I watched it at 2 in the morning. And I was like, what am I looking at? And mm-hmm. I, and so maybe because I'm a girl. So I totally related to her on a lot of different levels. Especially that when she gets to the new school and she kind of hates herself. And do I wear jeans? Do I wear a skirt? You know, like all that stuff is stuff that like I thought about too intensely when I was her age as well. And so 
I kind of felt like the character to me was pretty relatable. But what I thought was so interesting about Alice is that I went online the next day and I looked up different things about the movie. It had two different reactions. So some people saw it and they were like, that's it. I don't ever want to go near drugs. <laughs> Look what happened to her. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. And it was very effective. And other people myself included were like god she looks so cool when she starts doing drugs you know she starts ironing her hair <laughs> and she's got the floppy hats and she's like wearing these super cool clothes and it's like wow she's really beautiful <laughs> you know it's like lsd <laughs> makes you beautiful and so like it actually had two very different reactions from the its audience and mm. a lot of these kids saw it in school so it aired as a network TV movie, but it became something that they showed in classes to sort of, you know, in health class or whatever as part of like their drug prevention program. And mm -hmm. and it went two different ways. Now, this was in the 70s. And then as the years went on, you know, we became sort of more cynical about stuff. Um, newer audiences watch it and they just kind of it rolls off them. They don't even think twice about it. And it's kind of interesting the reaction to it. So because I'm still in that 70s frame of mind, you know what I mean? Where yeah. like, like, I've never seen anything like this before. And a lot of kids are like, whatever, I saw that down the hall in third period, you know what I mean? And so yeah. so like, it's, it's interesting to read all the different reactions um, mm. about it. But, um, but it really works for me. And I think part of it is because it's a female protagonist. And because I think I really I'm so like I've moved past my teen years, but like there's still that part of it that I can really like hone in on when I'm watching movies about teenage girls. And so mm -hmm. I instantly become like attached to like things that I remember going through myself. Um, okay. Not the drug part, I can say uh, completely <laughs> honestly, but like the, the really wanting to fit in and that not knowing where you belong thing. I think she did really well. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I was instantly kind of caught up in the story. And then you're right, it goes crazy really quickly. Like in the, after, right after the first half hour, she's like got no shoes and she's eating out of garbage cans and prostituting herself. And then she goes back home and it's just so hard. So you're going back and forth from like suburbia to like dystopian imagery, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then the dystopian imagery comes into the suburban neighborhood and then it's, it's so weird. And I just really liked it. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, I'm I'm half and half on it. There are bits I really like. There are maybe now I watch it a second time today, and after having seen the ending the other day, I went into it this time with the ending in my mind. So that may have that did bring it down uh, in my mind. But I'm wondering if that kind of, that kind of hangs with me because it goes from being uh, I I knew very little uh, about it when I went into it, and to me it seems like. It goes deep into the darkness, and then it's trying to bring you some hope. But then you realize it's not. You realize that it's like, um, I, I, I mean, I, I thought of this with, it, it's tricky with the ending. I, I was trying to think of endings I would compare it to. Now, first off, I would compare it to endings like like Driver's Ed films. Like sure. there's one called, uh, what is it? Is it The Last Dance? Where um, all the kids go out to their prom and they drink, and then the final scene is this incredibly harrowing and gory sequence where they all get killed in the car, and it's like, okay, with something like this, I I, I know there's no hope, and I know that they're all gonna die or be maimed. Sure. That's that's the point. But then I also thought of like movies like the other um, uh, day I rewatched Happy Hell Night, and Happy so Hell good. Night is a lot of fun. Yes, and um. And Happy Hell Night very specifically has at the ending of it, it says, here's how you get rid of the bad guy. You do this, this, and this, and then you win. The good guys do that, they win, and then the last minute, spoiler, the bad guy shows up again. And that, to me, 
ruins the ending. Well, I also, love the movie up until that moment. One guy doesn't make it either, doesn't. so it's got a really downbeat ending because it's got mm. this kind of tragic... We could talk about Happy Hill Night on a slasher cast because I could talk about that well, movie well, for well, like well, the, seven I, hours. But but what I want to say to you, Dan, real quick, what I want to say is, is what is happening is you are smart enough to watch a propaganda film and realize that what they're doing at the end is really manipulative. I think that's what's happening inside your brain. And that's why it's sitting with you uh, um, in a bad way because they throw that in there. I mean, it's in the book, but what I mean is they throw it in there at the end to kind of give you that gut punch. So they're like, even if you do do drugs for a while and you get off them, this is still going to happen. So don't even, don't even try doing drugs. Right. There's, there's no, and, and like, yeah. And something like happy, happy hell night that just ruins the ending. Like that ruins the last five minutes with go ask Alice. The moment I saw that, I was like, okay, all this, this stuff and all this, uh, all these things that happened, all her experiences and the hope we had in the last 10 minutes or so. And it means nothing. The moment she went on drugs, she was dead. And so it's like, so why did I, why, why, why bother? I, I'm going to go watch um, uh, Tommy Boy again or something and just have a good time laughing <laughs> yeah, for 85 yeah. minutes. Why would yeah. I watch this again? Yeah, so, it's kind of a dark but ending. But then I watched it again. But, but yeah. I mean, I think that's what's happening. I think you're understanding that they're yeah. sort of manipulating you and you're not going to go for it. But if you were 12. True, yeah. I, th- I, think, I think what it is is that I didn't expect it to be like an driver's ed film or like a uh you know hygiene film or something where it's you know no matter what you do you're going to end up with syphilis or you're going to end up decapitated in a car i I thought this might go somewhere um a little different and and that that's i guess and when it happened i was like shenanigans no 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 (laughs) i i don't like that yeah and but that that's me though and i can under i can understand i mean and part of me also went like (gasps) But then a second later, I was like, no, you don't. I've now grown to like Alice, and you don't do that. You don't do that. I have it written right here, G-A-A. That ain't go away, Alice. That's go ask Alice. So you don't send Alice. Right, sorry. Well, you know, it's interesting because Christiane F., I don't want to be too spoilery if you if anybody hasn't seen it, but Christiane F. actually has hope at the end. And so, which is really interesting because they changed the ending of her... Christiane F. is also based on... true. Well, Go Ask Alice is based on a fake true story. Christiane F. is based on a true, true story. And they ended the film... So I read the book, and I know all about Christiane F., um, as so many people who grew up in the 80s do, because we became obsessed with her. But, like, they they changed the ending to make it more upbeat, the very, very end, which is interesting because it, it wasn't upbeat. They actually switched which character gets off drugs and which one doesn't. And um, and they did that to as a way to end the film, and so it actually has a completely different ending than Alice because it offers hope, mm-hmm. even though in real life it didn't. I thought the fact that they made a disco party and the movie, it was I thought that was a little inappropriate. Yeah, they should have had you know a, a soft rock party maybe. <laughs> sweet <laughs> so, sweet ass soft rock. So thing. Nate, is it is that what the problem you had with it too? You just thought it was too manipulative. Um, that and in all honesty, it's um. I just didn't like the way it was handled. Um, have we spoiled it? Are we going to? Well, we can go ahead and spoil it. So, like, yeah. all this stuff okay. happens, right? And she, like, gets off drugs. And then she gets... They dose her uh, soda. And then... We didn't even talk about the heroin segment. We'll get back to what happens after they dose her soda after this. So we don't lose track. But And then she kind of, like, uh, sort of reclaims her life. And she goes to these drug counseling meetings and, and you feel like she's kind of like getting right back on the right track. And then the mom's voice, the mom, by the way, is Julie Adams, um, has a voiceover and she's like, our daughter died 
um, at, at after she turned 18 or her 18th birthday or something to that effect. And we're not sure whether or not um, somebody gave her the drugs or she was on them, but we decided to release her diaries at in the hopes that maybe somebody else doesn't have to go through what we went through. And then there's this really beautiful shot of Alice because she's getting dropped off at the high school and, um, and she's waving to her boyfriend. And then that's when the voiceover starts. And so it's really poignant. And then the credits go and you're like, Oh shit, that's fucked up. Right. So that's the reaction I had. Um, so Nate, I just, I felt like maybe if they had done it differently, um, I, I just didn't like the idea of, all this like you know uplifting ending where you know everything seems great and then it, it just almost and i realized it wasn't tacked on because that's how the book ends but just from watching it from a movie perspective that ending voiceover almost seemed tacked on as an afterthought mm. whereas i think for something that powerful like the idea of you know she got her life back on track but you know the drugs got her again or she might have even been murdered who knows um I think if they maybe have shown, like, you know, maybe, like, her family, like, devastated over her death or, you know, uh, just something. I just felt like the, the whole ending seemed like like a, an afterthought tacked on, you know, like, oh, by the way, I know everything seems fine, but just so you audience know, she died. As, I mean, that's just kind of what just, it felt like to just me. Just real briefly, <laughs> wait, real briefly, I just want to tell a true story about what happened with this film and why I think the ending... Um, mm. had an impact on some people, and uh, so do, are you guys familiar with Art Linkletter? Oh, sure, yeah. Did yeah. they do like children do the darndest things or something? Children do the darndest, and he had a uh, yeah radio show called like Art Art Linkletter's House Party. He was a, yes. Yeah. So yeah. do you know? And I wish I'd written down the name of the song. Did you know his daughter committed suicide by jumping out of a window, and no. um, she did it right after she did a song with her father about doing drugs it's it was about like living in kind of a permissive household i believe and um and about two weeks after she recorded that she literally jumped out a window and um killed herself she was about 21 years old and arc link letter so when go ask alice the book came out it was super controversial and um and a lot of schools and people who not necessarily the schools i think the libraries wanted it but the um the parents didn't and it got banned in a lot of different places and it was it had like it was just had a, it really struggled even though it was really ridiculously popular it really struggled and our link letter became um the books one of the books loudest and most fervent champions because of his own story and so the really interesting part about it though is that he became a huge spokesperson for anti-drug the anti-drug movement but when they did the autopsy on his daughter, they found no drugs in her system. But he insisted oh, wow. that she was uh -huh. dosing and she died that wow. way. And um, I just don't think he wanted to admit that she committed suicide. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, but anyway, so so he, the because the book and I guess the movie ended that way, it was really important for him to have people read that story because it was so close to his own life experience. Which I think is really interesting because I, when she says, I, well, just real quick, when she says we decided to release the diaries, that's kind of what he was doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, obviously, if they're releasing the diaries, and it, well, here, here the, uh, I'll stop that thought because I just had I had two thoughts of, from what Nate said. One, I what I thought of Nate um, was um, I thought of the um, itchy and scratchy and poochy show uh, episode of The Simpsons. Um, yes. What, 
when when Poochie, who they introduce as who's going to be this hip new character that's going to bring Itchy and Scratchy back to life with Homer Simpson doing the voice, he completely bombs. Everyone hates him, and so you have an episode with Poochie in it, and then all of a sudden it cuts to Poochie, and there's a and and Poochie says something like, "Hey guys, what's going on?" And then it cuts to Poochie, and there's a brand new voice that says, "I have to return to my home planet," and he's suddenly like flies off the screen and then you see a handwritten thing on the screen that said Poochie died on the way back to his home planet and that's that's kind of what I thought for a second when I saw this because it's literally, literally she she's walking through this crowd of students she looks more assured than she's ever looked she looks good her 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 receding hairline teacher's a boyfriend is in his whatever the heck car that is he's driving she's walking towards the steps she goes up the steps she turns it goes a bit slow-mo she puts her hand on the edge of the door she looks towards the camera our daughter died from a drug and literally that's what happens it's like the hell now i'm wondering would it have been any and why did I think of the Poughkeepsie tapes right here? The way it, it begins, um, the would it have been any different if it had maybe like begun with like her funeral or something like well, that? Well, no, because I think of course most people would have read the book, but I think the whole point was uh-huh. that it was supposed to for those of us who were the uninitiated. I think it was mm-hmm. supposed to be like, oh my god, you know, which is exactly how I reacted the first time I saw it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. The more I think about that, that's. Uh, I, like that less and less the more I think about it. <laughs> I but think, I mean, I understand I what you're a... saying. I mean, I just think you're you're just more in tune to to what they're trying, the manipulation of what I... they've done, and and it's that's all, and it's just not sitting right with you. I mean, that's what I think has I... happened. I think I think dramatically there's there were better ways to i mean there's a difference between what is it the um uh what is it the hitchcock thing where what's more suspenseful to um have a bunch of people sitting at a table in a meeting and then suddenly have the table or what's better having the table suddenly explode or starting a meeting where you see the the bomb bomb. under the table and then the meeting goes and which is better and to me um uh they do the explosion without seeing the bomb and you're just like, she's going to make it. She's going to. But I will say this though: as she's walking up to the the entrance of the high school, I was thinking she's made it very clear that she doesn't know if she's going to be able to yeah. keep off the drugs. Yeah. We know that because she said that, and then the voiceover comes, and I thought, I don't think we need that because she's been very clear that she said, I don't know if I can keep off this, and we know how much she loves it. So I, I, I just maybe it was uh, it's putting a hat on a hat. I don't know that we need it. You know, it's interesting because so the day after I saw Go Ask Alice, um, I went to the Alamo because they were showing the uh, foxes. Have you either one of you seen foxes with J- Jodie Foster? Oh, I haven't seen foxes since like the early no. 80s, I think, oh. on HBO. Oh, that's a great, it's great so, movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's I remember. It's so fucking good. But it's also got like this sort of yeah. drug addict, like tragedy yeah. kind of thing happening in it. And there's this really great camera shot that I can't stop thinking about. And I don't want to be too spoilery, but like um, with this character right before something really horrible happens to them, they get picked up by a hitchhiker. Oh, they're hitchhiking. They get picked up by this, this couple in a car. And, and it's a man and a woman and the woman gets out of the car to let the girl in and there's this camera shot from far away and it's all done sort of with like this weird street light and you can tell something bad's going to happen based off just that camera shot and I kind of feel like in a way the what you say like her walking up the steps you also get that feeling too that she's still teetering on that I don't know if I can keep living this sort of life 
or if I'm going to fall and, back. And I think it's interesting the the way they did that because they're not really doing much, but you get that idea between her getting out of the car and getting to the doorsteps of the school. I, I and I think I really felt like I I I don't think she can make it, but I think she's going to do her damnedest to do it. And then immediately the voiceover comes, and I thought, oh okay, I was wrong. All right, well there you go. <laughs> she got her soda dosed right. again. And it, it's, I think, like I said, Alice for the first like 45 minutes of the movie was kind of like a cipher to me. But then in the last half hour, I really grew to like her. And so that was just like that. Like I said, it was a mix of a, a gut punch mixed with baloney. Yeah, That's I get what baloney. you're saying. No, I totally agree with you. So, but I want to go back real quick and talk about the infamous um, oh, do, soda dose yeah. scene. Yeah. So like, so like right before all this stuff happens and she really cleans up her act for good, uh, or we think anyway. Um, she's babysitting and she drinks that soda and she starts dosing and like she's totally tripping and there's this really great shot of her like going into the trip and kind of starting to freak out because if you start trip, what I know about acid is that if you go into the trip, ah. if you go, well everybody knows this, this is common knowledge, if you go into the trip um, in a certain mood, that mood's going to get amplified. So, like, if you're in a good mood and you're tripping, you're probably going to be okay. But if, like, you're really freaked out about something already and then you trip, it's only going to come worse. So when she realizes that she's starting to trip, that it goes into that freak out. And then it cuts to a commercial. And so you just kind of see her go off camera because she's, like, falling towards the ground. And you're like, oh, my God, she's babysitting. That baby is helpless. What's going to happen? And then she's in the hospital and her parents are kind of looking over her and she can't even speak and her face is covered in bandages and she's got these fucking things on her fingers like her hands are just completely bandaged up it looks like i thought maybe she set herself on fire was what it looked like originally mm. and and yeah yeah even with the bandages you can see her face is like all scabbed up and like it's and she can't even like respond to people and they're like you know the police need to talk to you and they're like maybe today's not the right day because all she can say is apple you know what i mean or beans or whatever and so like so like they have to give her some time but she also like as she progresses in her recovery it's obvious that she doesn't even know what happened that day and so um they she keeps showing her getting better but then she has like she goes from like having her hands completely bandaged together to having like five little separate bandages in each hand and so she has like these snow beast fingers you know and like, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, like these claws and then um ruth roman is her doctor which i don't know how i feel about that i don't know if i want ruth roman being my doctor but she freaks me out <laughs> but anyway but she yeah, tells her that when she started tripping, she locked herself in the closet to keep herself away from the baby. But in the middle of her trip, she thought she was buried alive. So she tried to actually scratch herself out of the closet. And she used her face at some point too. And um, and then they told her that she didn't harm the baby at all. And so, and then I think that's when she reclaims her life, right? Like when she understands yeah. that she knew what was happening was bad and she was able to sort of take control of it. And she knows that there's a good person inside of her that's responsible, blah, blah, blah. So, like, um, but that scene is so harrowing because it's yes. freaky. It's fucking freaky. Like, the idea, just the idea of her clawing herself out was enough for me yeah. to, like, I mean, I literally thought I saw that happen in the film. Like, because it was so intense mm -hmm. watching the recovery period. But that, to me, is, like, there's so many upsetting scenes in this film. That and the couple when they've got the two girls on all fours. 
Yeah, you know, and, and they just like offering them like a dog treat or something. Yeah, well, candy, they're, right? Just, Look, because they're candy. Yeah, and it's then candy. It's drugs, and then and the one girl can't take it, so she crawls out of the room and she's screaming. Yeah, and, and it's so yeah, freaky. But it's like, just yeah, it's these, it's yeah, it's these two teenage girls, and they're just like in t-shirts, and they're acting like dogs, and it's just like you watch and you go, oh, this feels like something out of a random seventies horror movie, like The Psychopath or My Brother Has Bad Dreams or it's something so weird ass like horrible, that. Horrible, horrible. But yeah. that scene about just, and the, what I love about it is. That you actually never see it happen but it's enough to like upset you permanently you know what i mean it, that's where i think the propaganda works really well i think that john cordy who's the director i think because he had that documentary background was really good at sort of that placing you even though it was schizophrenic where he would place you i think a lot of the places where he put you felt very realistic do you know what i mean and so it was it helped sort of like drive home things that they couldn't show on tv mm-hmm. i would agree yeah yeah so, and Oh, that's all. Okay, uh, I'm trying to think what else I have on this. I, mm-hmm. oh, I was going to say, um, as with Nate, it took me a few scenes to realize that was Shatner. The stash. Which was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he does. He really doesn't kind of look like Shatner. What? And when I saw that it was him, I was like, what the hell? Whoa! That I, I thought, should I go back and watch again? No, no, no. It's, Push on. It's a super subdued performance too. It's not at all. It's interesting because that very same year he did um, Horror at Thirty Seven Thousand Feet. And that's, oh, yeah. like, super yeah. over the top. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen him quite like this in anything before that I can think of he off was, the top of my head. He was doing his own downers during production, apparently. <laughs> he probably was. He and Julie Adams and that little kid, Tim. The, the oh, son. I like the little boy. He's cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nate, do you have any final thoughts? Um, no, I think I've, I've summed them up. Um... You know, I would recommend anybody that hasn't seen it to check it out. Cool. Okay. And Dan, you would say watch it, but be prepared I, I, for yeah. some bullshit. Uh, I, I would say, yeah, you you, you might. I, I yelled at the screen a few times. Okay. Uh, I, like I said, I grew to love Alice as it went along, but I thought there were a few there were a few choices made where I was like, no, no, no. Um, but that's just me. And the movie is as old as I am. So, uh, you know, there you go. So yeah, so I would say definitely watch. I mean, if you're a TV movie fan, if you're a fan of this sort of movie, oh, you, you have to watch this. You know, it's just something you have to watch. So, yeah. and I love it. I wrote about it for the book. I was really great. I, I'm not great. I was really excited to check it out for the first <laughs> she time. She was, was really, great. That's... I was really great. I would to say grateful, but I was not grateful that I got to see. It, but I was really uh, pleased that I had an excuse to sit down and finally watch it. And because um, you know, it's one of those movies that ends up on your pile, but you just never get to it. And um and so it was really great to make an excuse to like finally sit down and watch it and it had a pretty heavy duty effect on me. I'm a lot more manipulative though than a lot of people because I can watch like Happy Hell Night and get upset by the ending of it. You know what I mean? So like <laughs> so like what that means is that I probably am more invested in it than some people would be, but I do think it is something you need to watch. It's a curio. I think it's really interesting because it had such a cultural impact on us, the book and the movie in the early 70s and like Nate said, it's interesting to watch how they approached um the anti-drug sort of movement of that era, especially because it was so prevalent. Um, then it was really, and it was at the early stages of where uh, young people were really getting into drugs heavily. And so there was a lot of, it was almost like the film had to experiment with what it was going to do to deliver the message. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like everybody's mm-hmm. experimenting. You're either experimenting with drugs or experimenting with how to prevent drug addiction. And actually I'm just going to throw out a recommendation yeah. there as a f- double feature that might be kind of interesting. Um, there's a movie, and we should probably cover it at some point, called uh, 
God Bless the Children, I think is the title of it, or uh, Children of the Lotus Eaters. And it was the pilot uh-huh. episode of The Psychiatrist, which was a short-lived oh, TV yeah. show, you know, that was part of the Sunday uh, umbrella, I think, the- with Columbo and stuff. And um, it starred Roy Thinnes as a psychiatrist, and he would go do different cases. So Levinson and Link created the show, and it was loosely based on a true story about a small town where all the teenagers were doing heroin. And nobody knew what to do in the town. Life Magazine wrote an article, which I read. You can find it online about the actual story. And Pete Duell from um, Alias Smith & Jones plays a recovering heroin addict who goes to the town to talk to the kids about what they're doing. And it doesn't have a lot of, like, drug imagery in it, but it's actually a really interesting film. And it might make kind of a good double feature because it it maybe, in a way, does the job better of being anti-drug without really trying to have a message. Do you know what I mean? Because it's really about... Yeah. The story is a, the story is, is like about these kids all being addicted to heroin, but it's really about Pete Duell trying to recla- reclaim his own life after recovering from drugs. And and so he does... And, and w- w- wishing he could be working with Ben Murphy. Yeah, as we all do. Um, yes, I've, really, exactly. I've really come to fall in love with Pete Duell over the last couple of months. I've been watching some oh, of his yeah. stuff. He's so amazing. Um, you know, he committed suicide, I think, before the episode aired. Yes. Um, so uh, it's worth it. And it's, it's, uh, it's one of his best performances from what I've seen of his stuff. And he has tons of great performances. So in his very short life, he did a gazillion amazing things. And I think the psychiatrist stands uh, heads and shoulders above even that excellent work that he did in his other stuff. But anyway, if anybody is interested in doing like a weird double feature, I think that might be a good one. I, 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 and I think, I think that the show that the psychiatrist aired on was called Four in One. Yeah, It was an umbrella show. Yeah. And it was the psychiatrist, San Francisco International, and if you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, they watch the original TV movie, San Francisco International on there, and Night Gallery and McLeod. Okay, those were the shows. I couldn't think of, I I said Columbo, but I I couldn't remember um, what it was, but it was one of those revolving series where they would air one different one a week. Six, six, six episodes of of each show. It was, it was really short lived. Uh, Steven Spielberg directed an episode, I think, because Levinson and Link worked with him, um, on Columbo and they really liked him. Um, so, but anyway, I think it's a really, really cool film. So check it out if you can. Um, and I'm just going to do some background real quick and then we can move on to Voices and Monsters. Um, so this movie originally aired on January 24th, 1973 on ABC. Um, it ran against uh, on NBC Adam 12 and the NBC Mystery Movie, speaking of which, um, and that night they aired Banachek, the greatest collection of them all. Um, on CBS, it ran against Carol Burnett and Medical Center. It got a rating of 23.7 slash 36, which means 23.7 million homes with televisions were watching Goask Alice, which represents 36% of the television viewing audience of the night. So that placed it at 15th for the week. And it was the 18th highest rated movie of the year, made for TV movie out of 168 titles, which is pretty good. Um, it was, as I said, it was directed by John Cordy. The screenplay was by a woman named Ellen M. Violet, who I meant to research a little more. We'll talk about her a bit, though. And, of course, it was based off um, a novel by Beatrice Sparks. So just to briefly go into Beatrice Sparks's um, thing, what happened was um, Go Ask Alice was released as being written by Anonymous. And uh, for years, everybody thought it was truly the diary of a 15-year-old girl. But by the late 70s, um, as I could, I went into like a Google newspaper when you used to be able to search them a little better. I actually went through like a newspaper research project where I tried to go, go back as far as I could to figure out when Beatrice Sparks had been uncovered as the author of Go Ask Alice. And I believe we've known about it since the late 70s. But even in the 80s when I was a teenager and beyond in the 90s, most everybody I knew thought it was written by a teenage girl. 
And I think that's really interesting. And that goes back to when I was talking about that card catalog project I wanted to do where, um, so when authors change, you know, like they change their name or if an author gets discovered that was recently unknown or previously unknown, uh, it is up to the librarian to change out the card catalog, right? But they didn't have electric card cat cataloging back then, so we couldn't share information. So I was curious about what libraries had Beatrice Sparks listed as anonymous. This is how you can tell I'm an information science graduate student. Um, so I was curious to see what, what libraries had um, Go Ask Alice from listed as by Beatrice Sparks and which still had her as anonymous and how long they kept the anonymous catalog card um, listing. But um, that's just, I would need a grant project for that and I would have to travel around the country. But anyway, I was really curious about like it because because even a decade afterwards, um, I, I th always thought it was an anonymous person. I didn't realize that it was a 30-year-old a, a woman. And so I think Beatrice Sparks was a drug counselor. I could be wrong about that, but I think what she said was it was sort of a hodgepodge of different people's confessions to her in therapy about um, things that had happened to them while they were on drugs. And there's a series of books that I think she wrote. One is about a cult that I haven't read that's supposed to be pretty good. Um, and I think she wrote that as well. Um, so uh, Ellen M. Violet did the adaptation. Ellen, uh, Ellen did a lot of adaptations. Um, her first one was uh, an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery from 1950. I think I actually may have seen that in school and it was really good. Um, and her teleplay was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, Violet was actually the stepdaughter of Nelson Doubleday, who you probably know from Doubleday Publishing. So she grew up in a really prominent family. I believe she may have been blacklisted, but when I tried to back into that, I couldn't find enough information on it. Um, I will say that both her and John Cordy love working in television. Um, I found this quote from Violet that I thought was really interesting. She said, television is its own legitimate medium of art. I love the closeness of television, the intimacy, as opposed to the movies. This, uh, of course, she says a word here I can't pronounce. This proscenium arch comes to the viewer and gives you the kind of attention you get from a reader. There is no audience better than the audience of one. There never will be. So she really liked working for TV, which I thought was really cool. Um, John Cordy was also primarily a TV director. Uh, Go Ask Alice was his second TV movie, the first one being The People, with, which also had William Shatner in it. Uh, before that, he directed documentaries and was an Oscar winner. Um, he actually directed the Thelma Thumb animated sequences that were featured on Sesame Street, which I don't remember, but I made a note of that because I'm sure other people will. Um, he, I believe he currently lives in Marin County. Uh, he, he seems to do still do interviews about his career, and it seems like he's always in Marin County when he does it. Um, he thought that the TV medium was, was really good, but he also felt like he had a lot of creative control, which is interesting because a lot of directors, I think, feel like they're work for hire on the TV movie um, forefront, but he felt like he got a lot of control over like the artistic quality of it. Um, so Alice was played by Jamie Smith Jackson. I should also say that Alice is not the name of the character in the book. There is no character name. Uh, that's just a reference to the Jefferson Starship or Jefferson Airplane song. I'm sorry. Jefferson and, Airplane. Yeah. Jefferson Airplane song. And and she, and so she's never full, she's never named in the book, but I believe she talks about the song in the movie or in the book so that they uh, they adapted it for the film itself. Um, but anyway, Alice was played by Jamie Smith, Smith Jackson, excuse me. This was her first uh, television role. But in 1973, she actually, had, which when this came out, she had 10 acting credits already. Um, she did four other TV movies, Satan's School for Girls, House of Evil, Lisa Bright and Dark, which I'm dying to see, and something called Remember When. Um, her last role was in 1994. She uh, provided the voice for a short film. She's married to Michael Onkeen, who you probably know best from Twin Peaks. Um, and uh, I think she might be an interior designer in Hawaii. Um, I found this really interesting obituary that had her listed. 
And if if that obituary is correct, her parents actually owned a drive-in theater in Marshall, Missouri when she was a child, um, which I thought was really cool. And we've mentioned most of them, but just to uh, sort of refresh everybody's memory, there were several interesting cameos in Go Ask Alice. This was an early uh, role for Robert Carradine. Do you remember he's the bag boy that jokes to her oh, yeah. about she should get oh, off yes, her, yeah. she should get off mm-hmm. her high horse or maybe she's just high on the horse that yeah that's a bit of a strange scene where they're kind of uh, picking on Alice for being yeah. on drugs and her ma's her ma's standing there kind of <laughs> it's like ma come on yeah you know, me do, a little do here. Some, and then yeah. and then we mentioned the other ones we mentioned Mackenzie Phillips Andy Griffith and Charles Martin Smith is the guy we were talking about earlier the, the director from um, American Graffiti and Ruth Roman from The Baby uh, Go Ask Alice was a Metro Media production, and at the time, um, they had produced more weekly programs than any other production company. Uh, apparently, they spent about $25 million uh, during the 1972-73 season. This was, uh, oh no, this was not their first telefilm. Their first telefilm was actually Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring with Sally Field, which may also be its own sort of propaganda movie. So I, I should actually look up Metro Media's um, telefilm filmography, because I, be- I wonder if there's more films like this in here that are sort of addressing cultural tensions in the way that they're addressing them. Um, and that's all of the background I have on this film. Um, uh, again, I really loved it. I think Dan liked parts of it and Nate thought it was okay. <laughs> so yeah, that works. Yeah. there you go. Uh, so we're going to say goodbye to Alice for now. And we're going to say Alice. hello to some really cute boys in 1982's <laughs> Mazes and Monsters, one of my all-time favorite films that I don't watch all the time because it makes me bawl my eyes out. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller. Until they take it too far. I propose we play mazes and monsters in a real setting. It won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know, I killed somebody. Mazes and monsters. Saturday at 3 on ZTV, Fox 17. Okay, so here we go. And this is actually, it was funny, I was just, I have um, my copy of uh, Merrill in front of me here just to get the names. Uh-huh. And he has, it list, he has it listed under Rona Jaffe's, in quotes, Mazes and Monsters. That's how I so think whenever, it was released, to be honest with you. That's what the title card says, yeah. yeah. Um, so this movie begins, well, this movie begins uh, at night at the Pequod Caverns, which is sort of a um, uh, kind of a, a shutdown series of caverns outside of a, a, a town, um, condemned kind of, well, not, not you don't condemn caverns, you just say don't go in the friggin' things. Um, and the cops <laughs> are there, and the reporters are there, and it's all crazy, and there's a report, uh, cop there named Lieutenant Martini, played by Murray Hamilton. Yeah. And... Yeah, and, and a reporter uh, kind of goes up to him, you know, and asks him what's going on. Well, a local a grad student from the local college apparently has gotten lost in the caverns. We can't give you the per, uh, person's name. We're sorry, but we think it had something to do with them playing a game of mazes and monsters. Mazes and monsters is a lot like Dungeons and Dragons, which some of you may know, some of you may not. I might talk briefly about my experiences with Dungeons and Dragons, which actually aren't a lot, but I had some around this time. And they sort of, it's sort of, you know, we, we can't tell you who it is. We're still trying to find this person. And the reporter uh, does a quick, like, live broadcast talking about mazes and monsters. And frankly, the, the stuff he says, my note about what he says is, is this guy shitting me? And we can talk about late, later about what he says in his little report. But he says, 
what I just told you, more or less. And then we meet the four main players of Mazes of Monsters. We meet, let's see, first we meet J.J., J.J. Brockaway, Chris Makepeace. And he's always wearing a hat of some variety. And he lives in a very wealthy sort of penthouse, something or other apartment in New York City. And his mom is, um, his mom to me is a variation of the mom from Sleepaway Camp. Mom, I'm home. Thanks, Paul. Oh, thank you. JJ, where are you? I'm in here. Darling. Oh, darling. You've grown. I'm not growing anymore. This is it. Well, you have an IQ of 190. I don't suppose it matters if you're that tall. I'm late. Oh, oh where are you going? To the French consulate for cocktails. Then to a new place in Soho for dinner. Got rave reviews. Everything is less fattening. <laughs> Even the champagne has less sugar. Before I go, I want to show you your new birthday present. But it's a month till my birthday. Oh, it doesn't matter. You've seen anyway. Oh, no. Yes, yes. No. Come on, come on. Voila. Oh, no. What have you done? It looks like a hospital. Don't scream at me. I worked my tail off to get this finished in time. Where's all my stuff? My furniture? I can tell you don't like it. Don't like it? I hate it. JJ, do you know how many of my clients would give their eye teeth for a Julia Brockway room like this? Your clients put their eye teeth in a glass of water every night. And she's like, her new thing is she just completely, her, her son is back from, is he back from school or back from vacation? No, he's going back to school. He's back from vacation or something. It doesn't matter. He was somewhere. He's come back. She's remodeled his room completely in a way that he hates. And it's so she's that kind of mom where it's like she does these things and she doesn't really seem to think. And she's like, well, I have to go see the French ambassador. And J.J. has a, a talking uh, bird uh, named Merlin. And he's the first. Named Mel Blaine. Yes, yes, yes. And. Um, and that's that's the first that's the first guy and and JJ is very um, adorable. He's he's adorable and he's yeah he's always got the hats and he's very eccentric and he loves his mazes and monsters and um, uh, we meet the I forget the order we meet everyone in but then I'm gonna go next to Kate um, Kate Finch and Kate is standing with her mom. Here's a great thing: three of the four moms we meet. One of them is Anne Francis. One of them yep. is Vera Miles. One of them is Susan Strasberg. What? I could have just... That would have been the movie I wanted to watch. Just call it The Three Moms. I could have spent the movie watching them. It has an but amazing we, cast. And at the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about the horror pedigree of the actors. Because it's incredible. So you meet Kate. And Kate uh, goes to the same school J.J. does. And she sort of talks about how the guys treat... Um, they're very chauvinistic and the way they treat her. And they like their gals to be kind of dumb uh, sort of thing. And Kate wants to be a writer. And um, I don't know how good Kate is going to be at being a writer. Because she does that thing that people who I've heard before from people who say they're writers where I don't think I can who I don't think I can, I haven't had enough experience well how am I going to write and Susan Strasberg looks at her and when Susan Strasberg says it you listen she says why not use your imagination and Kate is kind of like oh 
So wait, real quick, and this is totally going on a tangent, but there's this movie called L.A. Goddess with David Hevner, and I love this movie, but it's like a... I loved it. I've never heard of that. It's like a sex comedy. I don't... Well, it's not really a comedy. It's like a... I don't know what it is. It's not an erotic thriller, because there's no thriller, but it's it's not really erotica either, but it's got naked people. But like, with like the girl that stars in it, the L.A. Goddess, she is a screenwriter. So the opening scene... This is really all I remember about the film now, because I haven't seen it in like a decade, but like, um, she's like... I feel like there's a voiceover. She tells somebody like, I'm a screenwriter. And then you see her sitting down and it, and she types out fade in. And then she rubs her chin because she doesn't know what else to write. And I'm like, you're not a writer <laughs> if all you write is fade in. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And so that kind of yeah, makes me yeah, think if, of that. If you're, if you're writing, if you, if trust me, having written like 15 scripts, if you type the words fade in, you have at least the next scene in your head. You, you don't just have those yeah, two She just two rubs words. her chin. It's hilarious. It's just like, hmm. Hmm, where might I go from here? <laughs> um, so, so we get Kate, we get JJ, and then we meet Daniel. Um, and David Dan- Wallace, yay! David Wallace, so cute. David Wallace. If you want to discuss him briefly, I just want to say he's super cute. I'm just going to talk about how cute the boys are oh. in this movie, like over and over again. Okay. Just, you know. uh, so, so, so uh, you meet Daniel, and Daniel is having an argument. All, all these uh, folks come from uh, rich parents, and some of them are. Uh, oblivious to them and some of them like Daniel's parents are like Daniel we want you to do this well I think I'd be better at this and the mom who's played by Anne Francis gets really mad at Daniel not doing what they want him to do and which is why you know I thought I love Anne Francis but I right here I can I could take her a lever so you so you get Daniel and Daniel one of Daniel's traits is he's got not a lot of girlfriends but he sleeps around with a lot of gals and because he's been hurt, and you know, you can take, take that or whatever. Aww. Oh, I know. Oh, the, the hunkiest guy on campus got hurt and has to sleep with a different beautiful woman every night. Oh my God, the humanity! I know. Oh, I know. So, Such a rough life. Oh. So then we meet the last guy, and the last guy is two-time Academy Award winner. He's only won two, right? He hasn't won a third uh, one. I'm since not I sure, started. to be honest with you. I know he's won two. Yes, Rob Robbie Wheeling. Played by Tom Yay. Hanks. Hooray! And can I, I just want to say this because I'll forget this as we're talking. One of the early scenes with Tom Hanks, this is about a year or two after he knows you're alone. And one of the early scenes where you see him, he's jogging. And oh, all I could yeah. think of was, all I could think of was when he went in for the audition, they looked at him and he said, we got one question for you, Tom. What is it? Can you jog? And he said, did you see my first movie? He knows you're alone. Because I'm introduced in that jogging, and they called up Armando Mastriani. They're like he can jog, but uh, so Robbie's in the back of this car with his parents, and his mom there is Vera Miles, and um, and uh, yeah, apparently she's an alcoholic, and he's very stern and kind of unpleasant. Now he he says to her at one point, um, "You mean the dad is stern? The the, da- the dad? The dad? I'm sorry, Lloyd the dad Bachner, is right? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is Lloyd Bachner, definitely, yeah." And and he says to it, it. It's implied that they've sort of been driving a ways to get to this school because they they mention that we don't want you playing that game, which apparently kind of flunked him out of the last school he was at. So they're kind of going the next couple of towns over or something, taking him to another school. And at one point, he turns to his wife and says, "Have you been drinking?" I thought, how would she be drinking? She's sitting next to you in the car the entire. Th- Did she have a little? I don't know. But uh, anyway, she he gets out and he's ready to go. So those are our four main characters. And we learn that JJ, Daniel, and Kate, who have, who have been there for a while, had a uh, foursome of <gasps> mazes and oh. monsters going. They need. Oh, hmm. yeah, suddenly it's Go Ask Alice all over again. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> they don't let us see what they're doing when they're playing mazes and monsters. But um, and they need a fourth player in order to play because you have the maze. Who would be the dungeon master? Sort of the maze commander, the maze person, maze the controller. person in charge. I think he called himself. Maze Maze controller and three characters, and they need a ninth level character, which means that you've you've had this character for a very long yeah. time, and 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 Robbie sort of shows up and is like, I shouldn't really play, and like, come on and play, and then suddenly he's playing, and they're playing and they're having a great time, and uh, we can go into what Dungeons and Dragons sort of entails, but it's very much like, um, you know, I am what is it? Uh, what well, I've got it written here. Um, JJ says I am Fredic. Frentic of Glossamen, and I am, and Tom Hanks is, I am Pardu, I'm mm. a holy man, and they're all, they're all something or other, and, um, and they play, and they have a great time, and so they're playing, and they're enjoying each other's company, and um, uh, Kate and Robbie, Tom Hanks, begin to sort of, you know, uh, cultivate a relationship. As this is going on, Daniel is constantly bemoaning the fact that he has to sleep with so many beautiful Aww. women, and JJ, JJ <laughs> is having a rough time because JJ wants to um, uh, sort of do something new with the game. Well, he's also like a and, child genius, right? So he's younger than they are. Yeah. He's a teenager, and so yeah. he, uh, I think he has a crush on Kate as well. Yes. And yeah. so he's, I think everyone does. Yeah, so. well, she's beautiful, yeah. but he's like in a, he's in an awkward position. Yeah, and so, so he begins to set up a, an evening in the Pequod Caverns, and he sort of soups it up pretty good. He's got like a skeleton from the anatomy department, he's got like a sound system set up, and he's drawn this big map. Uh, through the caverns. Now, somewhere around here, and this will be important, uh, as Kate and Robbie are together, Robbie tells a story, and I'm not going to do the full, full, full story, but it's it's basically we learn that something that's always bothered Robbie is that his brother, who was named Hal, and if you watch it on Amazon and you have the volume turned down, it comes. It's Hall. They have two L's yeah. rather than one, and I don't think that's correct. correct. Um, it's yeah. Hal Jr. His brother, at a Halloween party a few years ago, uh, for Hal, uh, Hal ran away. He just left. Mm. He actually went to he went to Robbie and said, Robbie, I want to go to New York. Give, please give me some money. I'll get in touch with you when I go there. Robbie said, okay, here's the money. And Hal just left, and he's gone. And they have no idea where he is. They think he might be dead. But Robbie says, I think about him all the time. And I, I'm so guilty. Uh, I'm so guilt-ridden over, over what uh, the fact that maybe if I didn't give him the money, he wouldn't have gone. But I feel it's and it's something that clearly weighs on him. This will be important later. Um, so they all go to the Pequod Cavern and they have a great time and it's 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 fantastic. And, and JJ has this great setup in there. And they go in the cavern and as you, they're in the cavern, you think, okay, all right, we saw what happened at the beginning. Someone's going to get lost in the cavern. So the scene begins and what happens is they all kind of get separated. And then things start to go screwy because Robbie sees, and I think I wrote it down, but I may not have, um, darn it, he sees some sort of dragon-type creature. I thought I wrote the name down. Um, he sees, like, a giant, like, dragon, basically, like, come out between, like, a crack, you know, in the cave walls. And he kills it and yells for everyone. And they come running and said, I killed it. And he points to the ground, but, of course, there's nothing there. And they all go home, and everyone's fine. No one got lost in the cave. Everything's great. But a weird thing has happened. As Robbie is getting out of the car, he won't stop acting like Pardu, the holy man. And no one really thinks much about it at that moment. And they all kind of go on their way. And that night, Robbie has a dream. And in that dream, he sees something. I think it's, what is it? The Great Hall. 
Yeah. Or Great Hall. No, it's Hall. Hall. It's Hall, but I think it's H-O-L. Hall. Yes. And and it's sort of like this vision at this end of this tunnel who who is saying, you know, um, uh, that that the Robbie has um, he's fall, Robbie's fallen out of favor with him, and in order to get back, Robbie has to purify himself, do this, that, and the other thing, and find the two towers, which is a Tolkieny sort of thing. And Robbie is, in fact, going kind of nutty. Are you? Are you? Who are you? I am the Great Hall. Once you gloried in killing, now you are of a higher level. To attain the highest level, you must be holy in all your life. You must be pious, humble, celibate. But I walk with Glacier the Fighter! The holy man must walk alone. No, wait, please, Great Hall, I need you! When you are worthy, then you will come to the two towers and be one with the Great Hall. Wait! Hall, please! Wait! And the first thing he does to purify himself is he dumps Kate. Hmm. Um, which which kind of breaks Kate's heart, but then Kate kind of well, begins to sort of hook up with Daniel. Well, and well, yeah, I guess that's a gonna, good that's go? a good uh, sloppy second, right? You know, if if that happens, and 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 Robbie just starts to get sort of weirder and weirder as we go along, and there there is a moment in there. Oh, and I think I actually passed the moment where it happened. I apologize, but uh, there's a moment in there where JJ, as he's setting everything up at the caverns, he mentions. Does he mention? committing suicide in the caverns or is it committing suicide under it like under the uh the the campus or something like that he says it at one point he says he wants to go out big right and he's going to i think i think it's the caverns where he says so you kind of think at first oh he's going to die in the caverns but then he doesn't then they all go in the caverns and then no one dies and then the next night kate is driving somewhere and daniel passes her on a bike he goes into the caverns and you think don't kill the hot guy then Kate goes into the cavern, <laughs> Please don't kill and she guy. almost Please. dies. And it's like, oh no! And suddenly, so it's like, oh my God, what's going on? Who's going to die in the caverns? Who's going to die in the caverns? And then Robbie gets another visitation from this great hall, the great this thing, uh, who who has his voice yeah. kind of booming. And and the next day, Robbie is gone, and they kind of go to the police and kind of intimate what might be happening. And then suddenly, we're at the caverns. And we suddenly realize who might have been lost in the caverns. And Lieutenant Martini tells them, if he's in the caverns, he's dead. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it there. We'll talk about more. But is did Robbie go to the caverns to find these two towers? Is he dead or has he gone somewhere else? Okay. <laughs> okay, I want to go first. I because I I have a uh, I love this movie, but I can only watch it like once a decade because it just rips my heart out. It's so good. I saw it when it originally aired. Um, I guess I would have been like 11 at the time. And of course, I'd seen Bosom Buddies. And I was fully into Tom Hanks at that point. And I don't know what I was expecting when I saw it. But it had a really heavy duty Im- impact on me. And it had that propagandistic uh, sort of effect on me where I was like, I'm not going to play a role playing game. You know what I mean? Like it really worked like at its message in my little brain at like 12. And um, and it haunted me in a lot of ways 
Um, there's so many things about this film that I love, and as an adult, I guess thinking about it now, first of all, there's everybody in this movie's famous, right? You've seen every actor in this cast in something else and probably a horror movie and it feels kind of like a horror movie in that it's like these kind of privileged kids in this like beautiful college getting into hijinks and then something bad happens and aesthetically it doesn't look that different from something like happy birthday to me right so it's got that kind of early 80s mm, yeah. like upper class sort of thing going that's really cool and that i love and um and it's really moving because um, I don't know how spoiler we want to get right away, but like when all is revealed at the end, it just, ugh, it just weighs so heavy on my heart. Like I'll cry now talking about it. It's such a beautiful film. I think it does such a good job at what it's trying to do. Maybe too good of a job, but like it just works on so many different levels. I love the characters. I love the way the film looks. Um, the ending rips my heart out in all the right ways because I care so much about these people and I just think it's a really beautiful film I think it's one of those late entry movies that maybe I I don't know that I should I should pay more attention to it it's a late entry film that probably does it's got a cult reputation a lot of people have seen it but I think that maybe it should be better known than it is and luckily because Tom Hanks stars in it it kind of keeps going on because it's a curiosity for people who love Tom Hanks right and um it's just so good. It's so, so good. And so I'm really excited that I picked up the book that it's based on. And what's interesting about the book is that it looks like a romance novel. So I'll just describe it to you. And if I remember, and I never remember to do this, but when I post a podcast on the website, I'll try to post a cover of at least the edition of the book I have, which it's, um, I guess the movie is told from Wendy Crewson's character's point of view, Kate. And so she's prominent on the cover of the book. And it's got this, uh, it looks like a Harlequin romance novel. And um, it's just her kind of looking at you smiling and then it's got these sort of background sort of in these charcoal uh sort of farther behind her three men's faces and and i don't know i think it's interesting that it's told from a woman's point of view because i think people think of D D as a man's game right so so i'm curious to see how the book plays that out but um anyway i had i wasn't that familiar with the book at all when the film came out i, I think i just watched it because tom hanks was in it and because it looked like a horror movie and i thought i'd really enjoy it and i was so like i can remember watching it the first time and just being ripped to shreds like emotionally and then i i didn't watch it again for like 10 years and then i watched it and i was ripped to shreds emotionally <laughs> I watched it like every decade of my life and then I watched it again and then I was like oh my god this is so good but I can't watch it it's too much so anyway I'm a huge fan of it I think it's a really beautiful film I mean it's truly a beautiful film and I hope you guys enjoyed it but if you didn't it's okay so Dan uh, this was yeah this was the first time I saw it I watched it twice and I, I I'll say I um, I liked it more in the end I liked it more than Go Ask Alice I didn't. I thought I would love it. The moment it started, I thought there is nothing about this film that I won't love. The propaganda got in the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, it's such. It's such baloney that um, I had a tough time. Sure. Uh, with it, I, I I was able to sort of get over it at some points. But um, I mean, what one thing it does have is sort of um, having played Dungeons and Dragons, sort of. Um, if you can get into that kind of thing, it's great. If you can't, it's some of the most monotonous stuff ever. Because it, it's sort of literally, literally it's it's like you, you'll play a round of it and it'll be like um, you, you walk down a hallway. At the end of the hallway is a big wooden door with a handle. What do you do? 
Um, I try the handle. Roll the dice. I got a six. The handle doesn't work. Okay, uh, what do you do then? Um, I knock on the door. Roll the dice. Uh, you got a, I got a seven. You knock on the door. No response. What do you do? And this goes a half hour later. Uh, I set the door on fire. Roll the dice. You got an eight. The, the door doesn't catch on fire. What do you, you know, and it literally can go on like that for ages. And it's, it's, it's kind of a maddening game. When I used to play it, I used to always be the dungeon master, and I would just make up whatever rules I needed to make up to get everyone to fight <laughs> as many monsters as they could. So I was a really bad dungeon master because I just would let everyone... Because you're supposed to be very strict, like you see in the game. I mean, that's at the end of the movie. The way, spoiler, the way they save Robbie is they bring up a rule of the game and Robbie and them, they follow the game so yeah. strictly that they are able to save him by doing that. If I had been the Dungeon Master Maze Controller, someone would have gone flying without their proper flying points, oh, if you, that if you know what I horrible. mean. But, but the, th the thing about the movie is that once I can set aside the propaganda... I, I I really enjoyed it. I, I love I love as as I tried to bring up when I was doing the synopsis, except I freaking forgot the point with JJ because it's um okay. it's kind of not not telegraphed as strongly as the others. But there is that thing at the beginning. Grad student lost in there. What's the name? We can't tell you. And then oh, when they actually go in the caverns, you you actually get points where each of them are in peril, mm -hmm. and it could be any one of them. And, and so you're like, first it could be J.J. because he says he's going to go there and commit suicide. But then he actually creates this game for them. But then when they get in there, he kind of vanishes. And you think, is he going to commit Is he? And it's like a sound system. It's like, is he actually have this pre-recorded, And he's committing suicide or something? But everyone gets out. And then and then um and then Hunky Pants goes in there, but he's okay. And then and then Thank Katie God. goes in there. Kate goes in. There. Kate goes in there, and you think she's going to get lost, but she's okay. And then it's Robbie, but you know, I, I we're you know things are going to get spoiled, folks. It's it ain't Robbie. And Rob Robbie is somewhere else completely. They they think he's you know it's he's gone somewhere else to co complete his quest, and he goes. I mean, I just say that my absolute the place he goes to New York City and he my favorite moment when he's wandering in a daze through New York City is the first moment you see him did you see what movie oh, is playing on the market the slayer the slayer and i was like oh my god i didn't i didn't even realize like the slayer played properly in theaters i know Nate you guys did the commentary for that on the blu-ray which i haven't listened to yet but i own the blu-ray don't hit me um but uh uh yeah it's it's like it's like um, wait, wait, yeah, wait, Tom did Hanks. You just tell, did you just tell <laughs> Nate? Please don't hit me in the face, Mom Johnson. Not to hit please you. Hit me, <laughs> yes, I said please don't hit me, Nate. Please don't hit me. I'll <laughs> listen to the commentary soon. I always listen to the hysteria continuous commentaries. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was like uh, you see the slayer, and it's like this is 1982. This is awesome. But um, I, it's it's got a nice sort of. Um, I I think. Um, I, I, maybe it's just no. Yeah, this is just me. This is no, no. Because I'm thinking because when when the two towers, when Pete Jackson's two towers came out, everyone said there were people who got up in arms about it because they thought he was referring to the twin towers, but he wasn't. He was referring to the two towers in Tolkien. Sure. And that's what every that's what everyone thinks that Robbie is referring to when they see the two towers written. In fact, Hunky says. Oh, that's from Tolkien. Right. But then a little bit later, they're like, oh my gosh, he's going to the Twin Towers. And I mean, I mean, it's easy to kind of figure out, like, 
To yes, me, it seems obvious that yeah. it's the Twin Towers, but I guess being in New York, I mean, everybody calls it the Twin Towers, but there was actually five buildings, so maybe they just don't oh, think yeah, of it that way. True. I don't really know. But, um, but yeah, we were, I was like, it's the Twin Towers, guys. It's like the World Trade Center. Go. And that's another part of the film that's very upsetting is that you see the interiors of the World Trade Center, and they yeah. go to the top of the World Trade Center, and it's chilling, yeah. you know, because... Because we know, and he's going to jump off of it. Yeah, yeah. it's like oh. it's very. It yeah. has a whole extra layer there of like un- discomfort because of uh, what happened later. And it's inter- it's interesting too because he he um, Robbie's character learns that the well he does he doesn't learn he doesn't know what he's doing he's in a he's in a sort of a psychotic daze but he realizes in his mind that in the quest the two towers the twin towers by an old homeless man living deep, right. deep under the subway. And it, I actually have a note here. Why didn't he encounter a chud? <laughs> what, uh, where were the chuds? But he has, and that's actually a scene I really love, where he, like, he's supposed to be, and this is something we didn't actually cover, but he, uh, should we start this? Well, no, we haven't talked to Nate ask yet. Nate. We haven't I, talked to Nate yet, yeah. So let's, yeah. let's ask Nate. Nate, had you seen this before? Uh, no, uh, but Nate doesn't know what else there's left to talk about except the ending. <laughs> I think we've covered about every second of this film up till the end. Wait, tell tell me what you thought of it though. Um, no, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I, I'm not big on the gaming. My gaming expertise begins with Clue and ends with Monopoly. <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't know anything about gaming. I don't even play like game systems or anything. I just I know nothing about it. Um, so it was uh, interesting to get to watch uh, this film and I guess get a little more um, education on this like role playing type games that I don't know anything about. Um, but. You know, I liked. Uh, obviously, all the actors are phenomenal. Um, I will say that the slasher fan in me was kind of thinking when they were in the caves, how awesome would this be <laughs> if it was like a bunch of role players in these caves getting hunted down by a real killer one by one? I'm like, oh, that would be amazing. But I was like, no, no, these characters, I don't want to see them die. So they kind of did that in Shockma. Have you ever seen Shockma? I've never oh, seen yes. Oh, you have to see Shockwave. But they're playing fun. like a Dungeons and Dragons game. Well, that's game. a role play. Yeah. Yeah, in a yeah. building. Yeah. And but there's a monkey or baboon or whatever it is that's loose and it's killing them and throughout the building. It's so it's kind of the same thing. But the thing is I get what you're saying about the slasher thing because it looks like a slasher film. It you know, at the yes. beginning it's got all of the beats and it's got aesthetically it looks like it's these kids at a college. They're privileged, they're really beautiful, they're doing these things they shouldn't be doing in the caves and you're like, I'm just waiting for like, you know, fucking Harry Warden to come out and do something to them or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it never so I get what you're saying. It, it, and I think that's part of what draws me to it too, is because it does have a feel to it of that early 80s slasher sort of golden age yeah and i guess for me um i I looked at it as both films we're covering tonight kind of had tragic finales but this one i thought handled it so much better yeah it 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 felt realistic um and in a way it kind of reminded me of the ending to uh pin you know the late 80s movie like the ending to that it kind of reminds me of the ending of this this movie as well like i I feel they both kind of had that beautifully tragic finales where it's tragic but there's some kind of there's something really beautiful about it yeah it's 
Yeah, there's. It's more like a like a like a. I want to say more like a Shakespearean tragedy rather than yeah. a tragedy. Rather than a tragedy of like you know someone you love just got in a, tra- a car accident, a fatal car accident. Yeah, you know, there's artistic sort of different... quality to what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just glad that when they went to see Tom Hanks, it didn't freeze frame, and then they said, <laughs> by the time they got to the backyard, he drowned. He drowned. <laughs> <laughs> Like, exactly. We didn't need that. Yeah. He, point, he points towards the lake and he said, "Like there's a monster in the lake." Uh, uh, Robbie drowned five minutes later. <laughs> but you know what's yeah. so great yeah. about that ending is that is that they well, first of all, I love that he's still Pardue, but he's wearing freaking tennis shorts. So I don't even understand that. But like, <laughs> what I love about that scene, I feel like Peter Scolari is running yeah, around there. Somewhere. He should be. Like, he really. They, they needed to call Henry in and have him save the day. But what I like so much about that ending is that they're driving up and they're kind of like we hear he might be okay in a semester and the mom is really playing it off like everything's going to be okay and then they go back to the back oh, I guess it's not a backyard but to the back of the house and it's 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 obvious that he's not going to be better ever yeah he's snapped but yeah, they yeah. spend a lot of time redoing the qualities of the game to get him into it because he's talking about the forest and he's calling his parents like the innkeepers like it's horrible it's so sad I'm going to cry just talking about it and he's got that coin that keeps reappearing <laughs> That he gives them, you know, the little quarter they give him back. Oh my god, it's, it's so sad. But, it's it's like it's like if they're they're like different levels of like go ask Alice is like the gut punch tragedy, and this is sort of like it's not a sweet tragedy, but it's almost like because the three friends are like, um, our our good friend is broken, but we're gonna have one more adventure. Yeah, they they spend a lot of time. Yeah, talking about what might be in the forest. Like it doesn't just like he's crazy and then it ends. It's like it's like. There's a, it's like a five or six minute scene of the, him just yeah. talking about this game like it's real in those shorts, in those yeah. little tennis shorts, and it's like, and it's crazy, and it's like, but it's it just it it keeps getting it never becomes like oh my god they need to cut this short it becomes more moving as it progresses also because the friends yeah. are slowly coming to terms with what's happened and so they start to get into the game too and then and then Wendy Cruson there is a voiceover ironically enough and she says this was the last time we played the game. It was the death of hope and yeah. the loss of oh, our friend. Oh, God, so sad. It's so sad. I love this movie. It does everything right for me in terms of emotion. <laughs> it really just sits with me. It haunts me. And I think it's also because the character of Robbie, because we spend a little time finding out about his brother and because his brother disappeared at the Halloween party and he disappears at the Halloween party. Like it does everything right in terms of like the drama where like, you know, just enough about the character that you're fully invested in him and you really want things to be okay. And then when they're not, you just, and plus Tom Hanks is a great actor, but it's like, it's like there's so much right with how it was written and how it was performed that no matter what they're doing in terms of the propaganda for me, I just am so caught up in, his story and his ending that that's what just it just sits with me for like days after i see the film you know and there's something so ominous i think just about we had this halloween party for my brother and he just vanished during it and never came back and then later on it's sort of intimated that he's died yes we don't know right and 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 robbie yeah and robbie is going to meet up with him kind of thing and and it's just it it's it's funny that it's like it's like uh, when I I watch it twice in the past three days and eighty percent of the time I can forget the propaganda but there are moments like that open the reporter bit at yeah. the beginning where he looks at the camera and he's like mazes and monsters it's a game where basically like emotionally stunted people play it and they act out their problems in the games and I thought no not really 
yeah, no, I think I'm fairly certain that uh, what you're saying is built on a on a on a false fact that was proven. I think was maybe even proven by time this movie came out. I don't even know yet, but it was, uh, and it it was just like the 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 basis of them. I think I think the thing is, if this movie were made by a bunch of jerks who I never had seen before, like okay, I love Blood Lake. If this movie were made by the people who made Blood Lake, I wouldn't give a crap about what they were saying. But because it's made by like really good, there are really good yeah, actors yeah. in it, and everything's totally done. It, it feels a bit more like. It feels not, not a, I don't know if important is the word, but you can sort of slight or I can sort of slightly shrug off a movie like Last Slumber Party. If they were to do this, I could sort of shrug off and say whatever, you know, and ha- and have a great time. But with this, this them doing it and knowing it's on the network and knowing that there were going to be like moms and dads, yes. sitting, and maybe even my mom and dad sitting there going, wait a minute, I think Dan uh, is interested in creative yeah. things. We need to shut that shit yeah. down now, and that's the thing. That's the thing that bothers me is the is the um what I mean because I had that happen all through my childhood. So so I, I I I dislike the thought that this message of don't let your kids do this creative thing because that means they're crazy, and have them do something. Which is said like when Daniel's parents. It, doesn't Daniel say in the end, well, I'm going to do what yep. my parents told yep. me to do, and it's like, hooray! Yep. Yeah, he totally conforms to that. He gives up his dream, and it's kind of interesting because Wendy Crewson doesn't, um, and I don't think J.J. does either. I just call her Wendy Crewson as Kate. Um, but um, it is it is kind of interesting. He's really the only one who, like, yeah. gives up what he really wanted to do. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. That's the, that's the only problem I have with it. If it were made by... If it were made by Tony Malinowski, who made Night of Horror, then I wouldn't give a crap. I'd just roll with it. It would be a wave that carried me to the end. But because it's made by competent to wonderful people, um, it it has a bit more weight. um, And I think people would have paid more attention to it and possibly um, caused problems for you know, good kids who are just trying to be creative or do something, and that that thought I don't like. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't remember if I put it in my notes, but um, I didn't. But I will tell you that somebody wrote into the LA Times after it aired, uh, an adult, and they were furious with the film because they thought it made teenagers look like empty-headed kooks, and they mm. were they were furious that the film even got produced and um, angry enough to write a letter to the newspaper. So yeah. so yeah, some adults, uh, older people were definitely. Uh, well, no, I, I, that depends on what you want to believe, right? That adult was obviously a little bit sure. more open-minded. Yeah, yeah, but as a as an 11-year-old, it really had an impact on me. I really thought about, like, role-playing games as something that might be dangerous. And I only thought about that briefly because I've never been that interested in role-playing games. So it wasn't, like, something I was sure. – I had a moral dilemma over. I just never played them. But um, but mm-hmm. it, did, it did make me think that – you could fall into the abyss if you get too deep into the stuff. And so it's, it is effective. So I see what you're saying because it, it does what it does pretty well, you know? Cause I, like I said, the only, the only times I would really play is if I could be in charge and could ignore all the rules. And it was just about being creative and telling these wonderfully fun stories and no one ever died when I played. It wasn't about, you know that that's one of the things. If you actually play, a lot of it's like, oh, you've lost your points here and you're weak. And that no one ever died. It was just about having fun and stuff like that. I just wanted to tell tell a good story through that. And and luckily, I mean, my parents had a lot of other reasons to stop me creatively. Role playing was not one of them. So 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 something like this didn't bother them. But and can I just realized 
the other role-playing game from around this time that none of us have, have has anyone mentioned skullduggery no but we're going to talk about skullduggery <gasps> i've seen the movie yeah we're going to talk <laughs> oh, about skullduggery here i love skullduggery yeah I, in, when i get to the end of my my notes about oh, okay. background so okay because uh, i'm going to have a trivia question for you guys about it Wonderful. Okay, I've actually never seen Skullduggery, but I have a copy of it, um, and I've actually never watched it, and I feel really bad about that because I, I, I've listened to the Hysteria Continues episode on it. I try not to listen to episodes where I haven't seen the movie, but that one mm. I did because you double-featured it with something, and it was hilarious. Whatever Was it Boarding House oh, or something? And, and Skullduggery, I can't remember, but the double was so good, so I always end up just listening on to the second film. And, and uh, Eric does those trailers. Oh no! It was Day of Judgment and Skullduggery. Yes, it was Day oh, of Judgment. Yes. So oh, that's an that was an interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting. His trailer is so funny that like so I ended yeah. up listening to the whole thing. I think I reviewed that in the Bleeding Skull book, and I I really I really love that film. is so screwball. I I watched that like four times for the book, and I every time I had no idea what the hell I was watching. Yeah. It just it's such I, a wonderful I need to weird see movie. It. I need it's, to see it. It's so weird. So I was going to talk about something, and I forgot what it was. Tom um, Hanks. Oh, no, uh, David Wallace. No, Chris it, well, I love David Wallace. It wasn't the actors. Um, I guess, I guess, I want to talk. So, do you guys know that this is based on a true story? Oh yes, yeah. Please. Okay, yeah, so let's do that too. real quick before I do the rest of the background because I think it's important to frame this film. And actually, I wanted to do this at the beginning, but I figured it was better for you to do the synopsis first. So, um, let me just. So the the real story is is equally as tragic as the film although it's quite different in a way um and i bought the book that is based on the real person but i, I and i've started to read it and it, it's really good but it's it's upsetting so uh rona jaffe's novel was based on the true story of a of a child or i guess he was a teenager named james dallas egbert the third who was only 16 years old when he entered Mich michigan state university he was a computer science student um and he played dnd he was last seen on August 15, 1979 on campus, and he left a note saying that he wished to be cremated, quote, should my body be found. It actually took five days for the school to notify the parents that he was missing, and I think um, he'd had lunch with a girl and then kind of disappeared, and she told somebody he was gone, and then the school waited several days to actually contact the parents. Um, the search party ended up going um, through eight miles of steam tunnels, I think that were located under or around the schools. Um, because it was revealed that the students had been playing D&D &D in them. Um, and that's not normally how you play D&D, &D, but um, some people took it to, like, uh, locations. Um, and this was one of the first times, I think, that um, people had really heard of that. Uh, the, tip, um, the tip about the games being played in the steam tunnels came from an anonymous phone call from a woman. Um, Egbert's mother said that she was worried when she found his abandoned dorm room had, was completely immaculate, and she was really panicked that something bad had happened to him. Um, the search then shifted to a game convention at one point um, when someone thought they saw him. So before I tell you what happened to him, um, I think we should talk about 1979 when he originally disappeared. D&D uh, &D was a game that had been out, but it wasn't like uh, super as popular as it is today. And it wasn't like you, you wouldn't say Dungeons and Dragons and everybody would know what you were talking about. But when Egbert went missing, it really caught on. Um, in the news all over the country. It was a really odd case. And when people started finding out about these games being played under the tunnels, there was sort of a media firestorm and everybody just assumed that he died in the tunnels playing this game. So it really caught on that D&D &D was kind of dangerous and that people were getting really involved in the games to the point where it was like overtaking their lives. So Rona Jaffe took that and that's from a really uh, a very real point. 
But as it turns out, it had nothing to do with the game at all. He was found a month later. I believe he was actually working at oil field. He had um, run away from home. He was found by a detective named William Deere, who lived in Dallas. Um, and at the time, because Egbert was a teenager, there was no public statement that was made about anything about where he had gone. But a year later, um, he ended up committing suicide. Um, and uh, a lot was revealed in Deere's book about a lot of problems that Egbert had been having. So he was a child genius. And apparently at 12, he was fixing computers for like the military base at his hometown. And like, he was like crazy smart, but he was also sort of um, socially awkward. And it turned out he was gay and he was a drug user and he played D&D. So I'm not trying to line all those together. If you're gay, you're gay. But being a 16 year old gay kid at college in 1979 must have been really rough for him. And apparently he was already um, having sex. And he also came from a home that his parents apparently really pushed him very hard. And I guess he came home from school after a semester and he told his mom he got a 3.5 GPA and she yelled at him for not doing better. And so he was a kid that was under a lot of pressure. And what happened was when he disappeared, they called in this detective to um, go over his room and he found this map on the wall and that's that was how they kind of figured out how the steam tunnels worked because he had had this map and so because of the map and because he just this idea of D&D &D, it became that's what everybody focused on and even though it had nothing to do with what happened to him people really clung to this idea of the role playing game being a part of his death oh I was going to say and that's basically what the reporter says at the beginning of the movie is the nonsense yes. that the media was saying um that that is was completely incorrect but he says it so authoritatively that um there would have been people who saw it and went oh my gosh my grandmother for example she was the one who always thought <laughs> i was on crack whenever i came back from la um because she used to see news news reports about everyone in la being on crack yeah so it was it's interesting the way so what what rona jaffe did that's so interesting is she took the female character the female that knew egbert and she expanded that and made her the protagonist of the novel, which is in and of itself is kind of fascinating because this woman didn't really have much to do with the actual story that was happening. Also, she built the character of JJ to be Egbert, but then didn't make him the character that goes off the deep end. So I thought that... Yeah, that's what it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's kind of interesting. Um, so I'm really looking forward to reading the novel because I want to see where she made the changes and, and maybe if I see, figure out why she did that, uh, why she structured it that way. I'm curious about it. Anyway, so it's kind of interesting how she reworked it. And then it was then readapted by somebody named Tom Lazarus. But um, anyway, I think it's, it's kind of important to know the story because I think we can watch Mazes and Monsters now and maybe shrug our shoulders at it. But this was just a couple years. Well, I guess it was several. No, it was just a couple years after um, what had happened to this kid. And, and it was a story that like the whole country was following. And so like it probably hit home really hard for a lot of people when they originally saw it, if they knew about Egbert's life and death. You know what I mean? From, from around the same time, and I can't find the thing now because I just remembered I have it, but there was um, – I, I bought this at a used bookstore like a year ago just for fun, and it's it's fairly fascinating. It was a book that was published in 82 in the U.K., uh, which is like three oh, – was it in the U.K.? I think it was. It was like three like like 15- and 16-year-old Dungeons & Dragons experts wrote a book about Dungeons & Dragons. Oh. And it's not like a how it be, it's like how can you be the best Dungeons and Dragons player by three sixteen year olds? 
and it's like this it's like a it's like a mass market paperback it's like 250 pages and it's just filled with information it's like the exact opposite of anything that anyone like in authority in this movie would look at and think you know well this doesn't mean anything this this must all be code right is yeah. this are you stealing are you stealing our children and taking them to the woods what does all this mean i don't understand because to me like like the um role-playing thing is one step away from like the satanic panic kind of stuff it, so. it definitely is i mean I, I definitely like when i was thinking of propaganda movies there were other movies i thought of but i thought these were two really interesting ones and i think two mazes of monsters does it in a more subtle way which in a way makes it more insidious and dangerous yes it makes it makes it more it makes it more uh, uh, it really is because the actors are so good and the script is pretty good it makes it more sort of human as it goes along yeah. you care more about them so 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 that makes it trickier uh, yeah yeah so it's kind of an interesting film and I'm really glad we chose it. I'm glad you guys both liked it um, I wasn't expecting you to necessarily love it like I do because I love it but um, <laughs> you know it's just it's just I have to walk away from it and then I don't watch it for many years and I think oh, I remember that was really good you know what I mean and then I sit down and I watch it again and, and yeah. the whole time I'm like on the verge of tears like even just talking about the ending there I almost broke out in tears it's just it's just it's so emotionally on point and um, it just does such a good job but then you're right it complicates things by having this sort of insidious kind of undertone to it that's that i think as a now we can watch it and maybe see it better but in 1982 i'm sure it that went over a lot of people's heads and and the fact that it too is like go ask alice is an actual thing it's it's a drug it's an actual thing this is role-playing games i mean what one of the and, and this will be the last i say about dungeons and dragons but i played it occasionally when i was a kid but in 83 or so when I was about 10 uh, there was a Dungeons and Dragons Saturday morning cartoon which oh. I watch religiously which I own the box set of and I just recently rewatched the first season of and it ran for three seasons And but when it aired there's a commentary on the first episode where um the network exec there's a couple of ne network executives on there and they're the guy who wrote the first episode a gentleman named mark evanier who is a comic book writer and also wrote pretty much every episode of the garfield and friends mm, cartoon garfield from the and friends, 80s yeah. and 90s yeah oh it's super fun and and they they talk about the fact that they prepared this they put out all the ads they had it all set up and suddenly there was all this not quite like silent night deadly night style backlash but they said suddenly all these groups were coming at them going you're bringing the satanism into our saturday mornings sure. and things like that and they were like no not really it's just a bunch of kids who get a chance to be heroic and fight dragons and stop a really bad guy and they're right sure and and so so it's so so it's it's interesting to like so, because go ask alice is so it's it's in some ways it's not but in at its base it's it's based on in real uh dungeons the, the mazes and monsters is based in nothing it's it's based in nonsense uh which makes it a very different sort of um uh sort of movies to watch and the fact that the, the propaganda and the panic is there i think where it was a very interesting double feature yeah. i've got so many notes and there are still notes i'm looking at that we didn't talk about and i'm not yeah, going to tell you guys now get to them yeah because no, it's oh, we ain't late, doing that now. and we've almost got nate for yeah. the whole thing so nate do you have anything else you want to add no i don't think so um I mean, I, like I said, I, I did. I probably preferred this one out of the two we we watched, but um, 
Um, I guess for me, it was really hard. I mean, I, I could see what Dan's saying about, you know, obviously it's kind of propaganda and it, it doesn't you know look too kindly on, on the gameplay. But I guess since I don't know much about that, I didn't sort of fully get that when I watched it. So I think that might have maybe helped me enjoy yeah. it more. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, okay, well, I think we all enjoyed it. Uh, it's streaming on Amazon. If anybody wants to watch it, it's pretty good print. Um, and uh, I think it's a movie everybody should see because we always kind of think of the late, uh, not the late 80s. We think of the 80s as being sort of like the decline of the TV movie in terms of, well, certainly in terms of viewership, right? It was, they weren't getting the same numbers. But like the horror output was, was dwindling. But um, what they were putting out was pretty good. Like when I think back, like Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Don't Go to Sleep, even later in the 80s, uh, I Saw yeah. What You Did. There's a lot of really good movies. And Mazes and Monsters isn't really a horror film, but it's got a horror aesthetic to it. So if you like yeah. slashers and that time period, I think people will really get something out of it. And it's streaming on Prime for free if you have a Prime account. So check it out. I think you'll love mm-hmm. it. Tom Hanks is wonderful in it. Everybody's great. David Wallace is beautiful. So watch it just for him. And um, and then follow me on Twitter and uh, uh, use the hashtag Hot Guys of Horror and post a photo of him <laughs> like I did the other day. Uh, so <laughs> so anyway, um, let me just give you some background real quick. Um, this originally aired on December 28, 1982 on CBS. It ran against on ABC Three's Company, 9 to 5, and Heart to Heart. Let's remember that. Oh, boy. That's going to come into play in the Nielsen numbers here. Um, and on NBC was a show called Gavilan, which was a show with Robert Urich. And I can't remember what it was about, but it was a short-lived series. And St. Elsewhere. Um, it didn't do very well in the ratings. It got a 15.6 slash 25, which means 15.6 million uh, viewers. Uh, I'm sorry, 15.6 uh, million homes with televisions in them were watching Mazes and Monsters, which represents 25% of the television viewing audience of the night. It came in number 120 out of um, 231 made-for-TV movies that year. Um, but when it reran in 1984, it got a 10.9 20 and came in at number 38 for the week. It actually did um, not so bad the week that, that when it reran. I think that's because Tom Hanks had really taken off by 84. Um, mm-hmm. What's kind of funny, though, because Bosom Buddies was still airing in 84, and it ranked at 37 with a 10.9 slash 21. So that wow. week it was uh, Mazes and Monsters and Bosom Buddies were right next to each other in the ratings, which I thought was really cool. Um <laughs> Variety gave it a review that said it was often disturbing, always engrossing, but they gave Louise, Louise Sorrell a negative review, and I only bring her up because she plays the, uh, JJ's mom, and I try really hard not to be disparaging of actors, yeah. but I really don't like Louise Sorrell. I've never liked her. I, I just don't like her as an actress. Oh, and when she shows up at the first scene, I was like, oh, my God, please don't let her be in the rest of the movie. And <laughs> and I, I was... She's she's not related to Brooke Sorrell, Boss uh, Hall, I don't think she? so, but I don't know much about her. And I kind of hate to be disparaging. I'm sure she's wonderful. And lots of people love her. She's on Days of Our Lives currently. Um, and it's great that she's still working. But every time I see her in something, I just, I just don't like her as an actress. And Variety pointed out that they thought that she was kind of a weak link in the film as compared to the other actors and I have to agree but I like how you kind of compared her to the uh, aunt in Sleepaway Camp because when you yes. say it like that it makes me like her a little more and I want to love everybody yeah. so I'm on the path she, she's not as camp as, no. the, as the aunt is but that's that's exactly because the way she runs up to her son who she hasn't seen in ages and she does that sort of continental European like well, kind of kiss like, oh, oh, like no. what is she up that to that won't do it all right 
Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, that I am a doctor. What did she say? I can't what remember. Is I just remember no, no, that won't do at all. That's all I really remember from her. No. But um, anyway, um, uh, uh, I meant to look up the composer. His name's I am not even sure I can pronounce it right. Hey, good Hardy did the score, which I think is brilliant. I really love the score of this film. Um, it be, it actually shot just a few months before its air date, so it aired on December twenty eighth, nineteen eighty two. But it actually began filming in September of that year so that's crazy so they put that movie together right. that's like that's like i was gonna say that's like to all a good night which started shooting in like uh july or august of 80 and then came out by christmas wow yeah, that's, that's crazy, crazy right that's... and and it's a great film yeah. so think about that so yes exactly yeah, and it was exactly. it was um shot in toronto canada it was a procter and gamble production uh-huh. Procter & Gamble is most known for producing soaps like Guiding Light, Edge of Night, and Another World. Um, I don't know if they've done a lot of TV movies. Um, it was directed by Stephen Hilliard Stern. Um, Stern was a Canadian who actually started at CBC doing commercials. He did five projects in 1982. So aside from Mazes and Monsters, and these are TV movies, he did The Ambush Murders, which is pretty famous and I haven't seen. Portrait of a Showgirl, which is pretty good. Something called Not Another Affair, which I'm not that familiar with. And Forbidden Love, which I almost chose when we did the Anatomy of a Seduction um, in Love with an Older Woman episode. Because Forbidden Love is also the older woman, younger guy. And it's Yvette Momo and Andrew Stevens. And it's pretty good. Um, screenwriter Tom oh, yeah. yeah, screenwriter Tom Lazarus adapted the novel from Rona Jaffe. He actually mostly wrote episodics, but he did do some TV movies in this era, including... Now, I always get these two movies mixed up, and I feel really stupid, but they're separate. One's called The Survival of Dana, and the other one's called The Awakening of Kandra. And I think The Awakening of Kandra is like a rape revenge kind of movie, and I actually have it, and I believe it didn't air in primetime. Is, is, is that's a... Paul Wendko's film, I think, you isn't know, it like oh, a, maybe, a teenage bride? Uh, no, no, no. I think it's a rape that, revenge movie. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm thinking. Of, oh, I'm, I'm thinking of the wrong name. I'm thinking of. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I no. have it. I haven't sorry. watched the whole thing yet, but um, <laughs> I think it actually aired as like a late night, like a CBS late night movie, and not. A, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm thinking yeah. of something else. He also All did right. something called Hear No Evil, Side by Side, the true story of the Osmond family, which must be fantastic. And he also did a movie yeah. that I think is streaming on Amazon Prime that I'm going to recommend called The President's Mistress, which is a John Lewis and Moxie joint. Um, starring Bo Bridges and um, Larry Hagman, and it's a really great, like, kind of espionage story about um, the president's mistress getting murdered, and his mistress is um, Karen Grassle, and I think she's Bo Bridges' sister. So he goes on this sort oh, wow. of, you know, he's got to find out what happened, and it leads to all this stuff in government. It's really good, um, and I think it was streaming on Amazon. So if you are interested in that, and I think you should be, everybody should go check it out. Um, so I told you all about the true story that it's based on. Um, of course, we all know that this was an early role for Tom Hanks. Um, and David Wallace also had some cred. Um, so I'll talk about his horror movies in a minute. But he, uh, you may remember him from playing Dr. Steve Hardy's son in General Hospital for many years. And he was kind of a controversial character because um, I think it was one of the first times I remember seeing an interracial marriage on a TV show. So his wife was black. And um, they did a lot on that storyline with them. And they were really great characters. Um and he was also on that famous episode of Different Strokes where Kimberly uses the rainwater to wash her hair and it, and it turns green. Do you remember this episode? Green. Yeah. Oh, I remember David that. David Wallace plays her yeah, date yeah. Um, at the end. He shows up at the end. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I love David Wallace, guys. All right. So anyway, oh, yes, sure. go into the horror pedigree. So I'm going to first I'm going to start this with a trivia question. Tell me what two actors from Mazes and Monsters also appeared a year later in Skullduggery together. Dan, 
Nate. Whoever can do it. Oh my gosh, in skullduggery. Um, I don't know. Tom, Oscar winner Tom Hanks. Nope. Yeah. No. Um. Okay. Um. Oh my gosh. Uh. Uh. Oh. I. Oh gosh. I really feel like I should know this because I I've seen that movie. I'm so actually kind of surprised. Susan Strasberg no, wasn't in no. there, was she? Damn it. Wendy Crewson. Yep. Yep. Okay. That. Um. Uh, and. Oh God. Uh, that uh, Lloyd Bachner. No, um, no, oh. it is uh, it Clark Johnson. He is the student that gives them the skeleton. Oh, oh, gosh, I'm I I I feel like I've let a bunch of people down, and I yeah. Apologize. So both of those actors did Mazes and Monsters, and then a year later later appeared in Skullduggery, which is hilarious because Skullduggery is like this little weird independent thing, isn't it? Uh, it's it's Oda Richter's um, uh, magnum opus. Yeah. I, I don't. <laughs> Uh, a skullduggery is like if you want another uh, theatrical horror that is sort of I, I that is a good double feature with skullduggery. Appointment with fear. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's Michael Winter, a, right? Is that Michael yeah. Winter? Yeah. Uh, no, no. A, appointment. No, no. Appointment. Uh, no, that's a death. scream for help. Scream no, no, no. Help. Not scream for help. Oh. He did another movie, and it's called Appointment for something. Oh, okay. Uh, appointment with fear is the one with the um, the guy in the insane asylum who might be some sort of god. And people break out into like uh, dance sequences at a mansion, and there's a gal with like um, it's crazy, it's crazy, and, and it's like skullduggery in that every ten minutes it seems to do something different, and you're like, what's going on? So that's sorry, that's that's watch it. So okay, so here are the other actors. So David David Wallace, of course, who plays the hunky guy in this, he was also in Mortuary and Humongous, um, Mortuary being one of my all time favorite slashers. Uh, um, he's hilarious in that because there's this really great scene where he goes to visit Bill Paxton at the mortuary and Christopher George says, get out or I'll embalm you. <laughs> and I think, it's, I think it's David Wallace. David Wallace makes his face like he's really upset. It's so good. It's yes. good. Oh, so, I love it. And I, I have that on Blu-ray. That's something where it's like, why do I have mortuary on Blu-ray? It's I don't amazing. Know yes exactly it's, it's such a good movie so uh, Chris Makepeace of course was in Vamp um, Wendy Crewson has a really weird credit that I, that I remember uh, Joe mentioning on this Derek Continues um, for Who Done It, which I don't think oh. she's in it I think that that's the wrong Wendy Crewson but anyway she it's on her page so I just put it down there uh, I remember he was talking about that too because she's in the Batman movie she plays um, Gary Oldman's wife and, really? Yeah, and so by 1986, she was already pretty well established. I think that's when Who Done It came out. I think she, I think Who Done It would have come out way after she was already working, like in higher tier films. So I don't think that's a, a proper credit. Um, of course, we all know Murray Hamilton from Jaws, um, Vera Miles from Psycho and the Initiation, Susan Strasberg was in Sweet Sixteen, Bloody Birthday, and of uh. course The Manitou, and and then I wrote Clark Johnson down from Skullduggery. So that <laughs> is. An awesome cast, and I looked for yes. Lloyd Bachner, and I couldn't really find anything except he was in an episode of the anthology series Dark Room with Rue McClanahan, but it's more of like a sci-fi comedy segment. Mm-hmm. So he's almost there, and his you know his son is Hart Bachner, who was in Terror Train. Yeah. Oh yes. That's so right, yeah. we're very I... close, very close, guys. Can I just say uh, I love Susan Strasberg. Whatever she, whenever she shows up, she's in a. Uh, oh, well, she's in. She was in a lot of early '60s, um, like Psycho ripoffs that were wonderful. Yeah, she's great. She's in an. 
she's in an Ellery Queen episode. She's so gorgeous and she's yeah, so she good. Is. She she's is. So I good. have her biography yeah. and I haven't read it yet. But you know, she died kind of young, and I always like. Yeah. I always yeah. see her, and it's kind of like sad for me because she was so cool and everything. That I don't know. There's always a tinge of sadness yeah. when I see her and stuff. Yeah, I, I always feel like yeah, like even in this movie, the scene she's in, it's like she just seems like even in Sweet Sixteen, if you know the movie, she's still kind of cool in it. Even yeah. in the end, she's kind of cool, you know. She's and great. and may I may I say, Murray Hamilton played, and I don't know if I wrote his name down. It's um Rutherford T. Grant in the third and final season of B.J. and the Bear. He was the Sheriff Lobo of the last season of BJ oh, and the Bear. That's awesome. He was also Big Daddy and, on the Golden Girls. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rue McClanahan's yeah, uh, dad. So there we go, Lloyd Bachner. Yeah. Okay, that's all. Yeah. yeah. There's so much going on. So much. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, this is super fun. This, this is a super fun one. This really is. Yeah, this was good. So anyway, we have our feedback, but I don't know that Nate can make it for the feedback. Can you, Nate? Uh, unfortunately, I can't. Okay. I'm usually asleep about an hour ago. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Well, thanks for staying up with us. No, Thank you. no. Thank I you. enjoyed Thank it. You. I was glad we were able to talk about both movies. Yeah, I I'm am glad too. we were able to skullduggery. That's, that's, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I, I just, I just, all I think of when I think of Skullduggery are the bulls, that big couple <laughs> who show up. <laughs> I forget like, what what shirts they're wearing, but I love the bulls. So that's such a weird movie. That that movie, I think that movie needs to come out in a Blu-ray, and Hysteria continues needs to do a yeah, um, commentary for that. Well, just real briefly, and, and- I want to talk about that episode that they host because. Um, Whenever I listen to, can I listen to it a couple times? Whenever I listen to the Day of Judgment, I get really caught up in Noodles the Goat, <laughs> and like he's in my heart forever. That's all I want to say, Nate. Now that I have you here, <laughs> the Day of Judgment is something. It definitely is something. Oh yeah, I, I really like both of those movies. I don't know if the same can be said for my other co-hosts on Hysteria Continues, but I liked them. I like Day of Judgment too. I was going to say, Nate. I think there are a lot of times where you say that, and I, I think the exact same thing. I don't, I, th- I don't know if they like the like with Blood Lake. I don't know if they're, they're in the same realm Fools. as uh, Hollywood. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> and I, I, you know what? I am dying. Here, here's the one thing. May I request if you guys ever do iced, mm-hmm. please have Amanda and myself on because we talked about iced for oh. nine. I love ice. I, I love. We talked last year at Halloween. We talked about ice on Dan's driving double feature for ninety minutes. Oh, that's awesome! I wish I would have been there because I love oh, that. Had one. I known, had I known, and and the ending. Oh my goodness! The oh ending my. to Ice is phenomenal. It's the ending of Ice is is more of a gut punch than the end of Go Ask Alice. <laughs> In a way, yeah. it is. Yeah. In a way, at least Corey survived. Not to be too spoilery, but True. that I'm so happy about that. <laughs> you know, the cute, cute boy in horror. But anyway, thanks, Nate, for sticking out. I'll Thank you so much, Nate. I'll let you know Thank what you. our next yeah. double is. Tomorrow. Oh, awesome. I can't wait. I'll It'll... be probably introduced to more stuff I haven't seen. <laughs> It'll be good times, I promise. Uh-huh. Okay. Good we'll night, talk to Nate. you later. Good night. Bye. Okay, so now we're going to go to feedback. And uh, I think we'll start with Adam's uh, audio feedback, which I haven't actually listened to yet because his feedback is so good. I don't want it to influence my own thinking. Yes, so so, <laughs> so I actually wait to listen to it. So anyway, so we're going to listen to it all together for the first time. Let's go. 
Adam Gordon here, and who needs downers when you can stream this double feature? While there aren't too many TV movies that get ruined in the last 10 seconds, Go Ask Alice was one of them. First, it undermines the message from one of hope to one of hopelessness. Second, I immediately thought foul play during the bad trip Alice experienced while babysitting late in the film. Without giving away too much of the epilogue, I felt encouraged to check out the fictional book on which the movie was based, and found that foul play was strongly hinted at on both occasions in the not-so- anonymous diary. In the movie, the casket hallucination could be interpreted as society holding her down, but in the book it was foreshadowing. It's obvious why LSD and drug legalization advocates really hate this film. It's not only a message film, but also a crime film. There were other considerations that blunted the message of the film versus the book. In the movie, kids get the impression that Alice was cool while on drugs and a drag when sober. Other events that couldn't be depicted on TV, such as rape, a very passing reference of forced prostitution, the Mackenzie Phillips scene, the sexual relationship between dealers Richie and Ted, which was depicted in the film as the drug theft scene, and how Alice got sleeping pills in the first place also left the TV version ineffective. Despite an outstanding performance by currently successful Hawaii-based interior designer Julie Smith Jackson, it was wasted on an overwrought remake of Reefer Madness. Watch for William Shatner's first toupee and Andy Griffith, miles away from Mayberry, calling a 513 area code number, meaning that the film was set in my current hometown of Cincinnati. So, yay, I guess? A couple of discussion topics arose, though. Did the father's career ambitions blind him to Alice's addiction? I say yes. And does the film criticize 12-step programs by implying that the kids in the 70s-style rap session just replaced one high with another? Having played Dungeons and Dragons, I can testify it's nowhere near as glamorous as portrayed in Mazes and Monsters, a satanic panic film based on a half-assed theory about an actual suicide at Michigan State. When Tom Hanks wanders off to New York City and Detective Buzzkill comes in, you braced yourself for unintentional hilarity, including a scene out of Urban Cowboy, where Hanks makes extras laugh. And plenty to watch for in this one, a computer scientist who thinks video games are going nowhere, old-school Times Square before they cleaned it up, cash that would have come in handy for a 32-block cab ride and an obvious World Trade Center foreshadowing. This film feels like concern trolling, claiming that D&D will at best make you asexual and at worst make you insane and suicidal. While there was the potential of the film being a look at troubled families and the difficulty of losing a brother, this film and Go Ask Alice are two prime reasons as to why TV movies have a bad reputation to this day. Thanks again, Amanda. <laughs> what a way to end that. There we go. There we go. <laughs> movies have a bad reputation. TV movies have a bad reputation. Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, had, he had some lovely points in there. The um, uh, the William Shatner's toupee. Yes, of I, course. Uh, we didn't comment on that at all, did we? I, th- I think that I think I've said this before is that I we have so many notes written down. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain having done this with you for a while, so many notes written down. We can't hit them all. And it's so nice because he hits these points that we didn't hit, which was like, yeah, he's he's, he's very good at it. <laughs> but um, yeah. one, the one thing he said that I made a note of while he was talking was uh, the criticism of 12 step programs, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and I think he's right that maybe it is criticizing 12 steps. And so just another Amanda tells or whatever that confesses thing. I dated a recovering alcoholic for a number of years and, um, he hated 12 step programs. He hated them and he didn't believe in them at all. He felt that they were just a lot of malarkey and his sponsor was full of shit. And, um, he had to kind of drag himself out of his hole, which he did. And he's still sober as far as I know, but, um, but I think that's kind of interesting because you don't see a lot of criticism for that. 
on television that I'm aware of. So um, it's kind of an interesting viewpoint that I hadn't thought of before. Because I, I don't really think about that scene so much, I guess. I, I think that the joy with Adam is he went to the place that I wouldn't let myself go to. With uh, I because I watched I watched both of these movies twice and there was a as I've said a, a dislike of the propaganda that yeah. I kept um, uh, uh, not, not ignoring isn't the word but I kept saying okay let me see what else is here but he dove right in which I like and I, yeah. th- <laughs> I think that's that's fun we need we needed someone to dive right in and say the the this is nonsense we I think we have provided plenty of reasons why they're not nonsense oh but yeah it's, it's good thank you so much adam thank you so much those yeah. are the- <laughs> also the other thing he said that was really interesting was he was talking about mazes and monsters when he was he was showing sort of like the spectrum of what will happen to you if you play the game and that's yeah. at best you're asexual which i thought was interesting yes. you think about that and at worst you're gonna yeah. commit suicide right and so like yeah. that's kind of an interesting sort of thing that the character goes through and i hadn't thought of that as yes. like um the beginning uh, because uh, Robbie is, and I put the book aside, so I don't remember all their names. Right? Robbie and Kate are having a lovely, re- and there's actually a scene where Robbie sets up his dorm room with t- with not two beds, but like an extra size, like yeah. two beds next to each other, so he and Kate can live together in the dorm. And she says, "No, not yet." But the moment he hits the cavern and gets completely involved in great hall, great, whatever the heck that thing is, talks to him. The first thing it says, purify yourself. And he says, sorry, Kate, you're gone. And so, yeah, no, that's right. Yep. It's, it's you either, you, you get asexual and then you jump off the world trade center, which is, you know, is, is, which having said that out loud, that's, that does seem like a panic kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's, it does, that's, doesn't it? Yeah. Could, could you imagine like the like a family in Iowa going um, calling up like uh, someone like in the Midwest, go, like in South Dakota? You know, like you're going to school in South Dakota. Are you gonna Are you gonna give up your girlfriend and drive to New York City and jump off the World Trade Center? We just saw a movie. Yeah, and actually, I could see people doing that. Yeah, no, no, don't do that, guys. Don't do no, that. Please don't. Please yeah. don't do that. I I'd hate it if. If if suddenly you start to see like reviews on Amazon Prime with people saying like I contacted my son and you know and he's going to Yale and I told him to not if he gives up his girlfriend and climbs to the top of a very tall building Seriously? I'm going to be very angry with them. Well, that'll be the review you'll leave. <laughs> I, I'm 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 writing it now. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. Okay. Greetings, Amanda, Dan, and crew at the Made for TV Mayhem podcast. This is Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you asked for feedback on your episode on propaganda TV movies, and I had some thoughts about it, one of which I know you're considering is the 1982 TV movie Mazes and Monsters, which itself serves as a snapshot of the moral panic of the day. And a moral panic is when society becomes concerned over a perceived evil or threat to the prevailing values and interests of that society. And it's often tied to something new, uh, concerns over something relatively new that is introduced into society, such as new technologies, forms of media, or forms of entertainment. And this is nothing new. Um, In the mid-1930s, having already attacked the relatively new art and entertainment form of motion pictures 
to some success with the implementation of the Hayes Code in 1930. Um, by the mid-30s, moral watchdogs started looking at that other overwhelmingly popular form of media, radio. There were actually calls to ban the sleepy time nightmares, the radio dramas that had scenes of horror, suspense, or violence. Organized groups argued that these radio shows would lead children into a life of crime. In 1937, a 12-year-old boy shot his teacher and then himself at an Ohio school. This was quickly somehow blamed on the radio show The Green Hornet. Even innocent fare, such as Little Orphan Annie, was claimed to unnaturally stimulate and thrill children. In the 1950s, it was switchblades and television often focused on. While there's probably an obvious issue with kids carrying around a switchblade knife, all manner of ill results were supposedly to come from children watching TV. My research into Saturday morning TV has come up with some interesting uh, results. Some of the claims people made of what would befall children included something called television malocclusion, which was described as an abnormal arrangement of the teeth, likely caused by juniors cradling his jaw in his hand as he watches television. Or frogitis, a leg deformity supposedly to be caused by viewing TV in a frog-like posture. Or TV squint, a permanent squinting expression from watching too much TV. Or tired child syndrome, fatigue and headache caused by too much TV watching. And by the late 1960s, Saturday morning cartoon superheroes were the latest evil to be concerned about, which actually led to a significant change in Saturday morning TV programming. Skipping over communism and comic books, at the beginning of the 1980s, this new moral panic started taking hold, possibly arising from mid to late 1970s pop culture, films like The Exorcist, ritual and cult murders in the news, um, an awareness of the Church of Satan, and a new national awareness of missing or murdered kids, particularly at the start of the 80s with uh, children like Adam Walsh and Johnny Gosh. And the book Michelle Remembers that was published in 1980 was all the rage on all of the talk shows, which led to the latest moral panic of the day in the Western world over Satanism and, in quotes, satanic ritual abuse, something that lasted over a decade and ruined many lives with the outrageous and fantastical accusations that were primarily directed at daycare centers. Well, part of this 1980s satanic panic was a focus on the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, Religious fundamentalists were all over speaking about the evils of this game. You had the suicide of James Dallas Egbert III, which triggered the novel and TV movie Mazes and Monsters, which I'm sure you will discuss. The TV movie was sponsored by Procter & Gamble, which I find very interesting. As early as 1980, Procter & Gamble had themselves been the target of a nationwide rumor that their company, its president, or both, supported Satanism, and that its logo contained satanic symbols. Of course, something proven to be completely false. It was just a rumor that was happening. There were even claims that the CEO or one of the higher-ups of the company went on the Phil Donahue show and made this claim, uh, which was completely false. Perhaps in an effort to be seen as anti-Satanism, they sponsored the TV movie that only served to further the ridiculous moral panic that they themselves were a victim of. Well, those were some of my thoughts. I look forward to hearing the show.
All right. Oh wow, that was a lot of information to take. Yeah, in. yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that the Green Hornet thing. I I did not know that. And um, I gotta say, uh, if Kiki Wrights is listening, we gotta talk about because uh, we're doing Green Hornet over on Adventure Super Train. We gotta talk about that because I've never heard that uh, about yeah, the I Green Hornet thing. I've never heard about radio, but it's interesting because when I think of Moral Panics, I always think of the video nasties. Sure, yeah. In the UK, and that's kind of where my mind always goes. And I never think about the U.S. history with it, although obviously there's been different moral panics over the years, but mm-hmm. he really went through the history of it in the media. And I think it's so interesting, like the stuff he was talking about, like where like if you sit with your hand under your jaw for so long, this will happen to you. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just crazy. It's crazy. And But I think I remember Michelle Remembers. I I I I don't want to say I remember that title, but that's all I can think of is I remember that title. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. I feel like it was a Go Ask Alice kind of situation. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Where it wasn't yeah. really based on um, a real case, but like sort of like this idea of cases that had happened or something. But I'm not positive mm-hmm. of that. Um, yeah. So, but it's there's a lot of inf- information there. But that's basically what I wrote down. Also, the Procter and Gamble thing, I don't remember that either. But that's fascinating. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I um, I, I whenever I think of, well, I love the Satanic Panic. I mean, it's so much fun. If you go to <laughs> the the stuff stuff in the eighties about it, it's so much fun. There is um. And I forget the name of it, but but you can uh, – it's not Vidmark, or is it? It's the people who made the New York Centerfold Massacre, which is a shot on video uh, film shot or like the uh, New York City area um, uh, in the mid-'80s. Uh, this was this company that made these super cheap shot on video films, and they used to advertise in the back of Fangoria. And they would advertise like satanic rituals, you know, murders. That uh, please write to us only if you're over eighteen for our exclusive catalog. And one of their videos was like a satanic thing with like a little girl getting kidnapped off the side of the road, and then she's returned to her parents, and she has these flashbacks to these satanic rituals. But it's all shot like, you know, like like uh, like my family's home videos from the late eighties, which is awesome because yeah, that's what say, I want my sold. satanic. Panic stuff to look at yeah awesome yeah wow yeah it was a, yes. it was a thing you know you're right i always think the video nancy's but we really did go through a lot of stuff in the 80s especially with the judas priests uh when those two kids tried to oh the heavy suicide. metal yeah, yeah. and mm. and so it's interesting that mazes and monsters which seems like to us now not mazes and monsters dungeons and dragons seems so yeah. benign in so many ways right it's just fun and so many yeah. people get into sci-fi and fantasy now and they're not crazy yes so it's weird to like look back and think there was a time when like that created a lot of problems you know with Mm. like parents or whatever yeah and um or society whatever you want to call it but the first time i ever played i was in uh, boy scouts so i was at a boy scout meeting so you know it it um you would think they would have regulated that if it was so terrible they would have said, guys, go out and tie some knots rather than playing this. Is oh, that, I hated tying knots. Is that a euphemism? Knots. Like oiling your glove? That, that, that is not a euphemism. That was one of the things they used to do. Mr. Thomas used to always have us tie oh, knots. is Mr. Thomas a euphemism? Yes. <laughs> yes. But the tie knots is not. Mr. Thomas has us make us tie knots. I start thinking about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 at the S&M bar. <laughs> yes. And that's yep. just where I go. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's it was uh, Boy Scouts was complicated. Yeah, then, it was a complicated time for everyone. Anyway, I just want to mention Chris Cooling does a podcast called Forgotten TV, which I think he mentioned there that everybody should check mm-hmm. out. He has discussed Lucan and lots of other interesting things. He's a deep diver. He's fascinating. I met him um, a couple months ago. He came to see me speak when I was in San Antonio, and I spoke at their popcon. And um, he came out, and we had dinner afterwards, and he's a really, really cool guy. And he has a really nice voice, and he's really smart and interesting, and his show is called Forgotten TV. So I think everybody should yes. check it out. I have heard several episodes of it. There's a Lucan episode. His latest is on the uh, T- uh, Starman TV show. He did some great ones on Saturday morning uh, cartoons. And he did an Ernie Hudson uh, one which may or may not include a TV show that I plan on covering and eventually Super Train sometime soon. And I, I'm jealous of his voice because it it stays more steady than mine. Mine mine goes from this to like, hey everybody, we're talking <laughs> the Green Hornet. You have, really that great? Good, you have a really good podcasting voice. I sound like Wally Cleaver. So if I was a you dude, don't. if I was a dude and I look like Wally Cleaver, I'd be like okay with it. Saying saying you know golly gosh gee all the time, but like. I don't. Yeah. I'm a chick. I'm a woman. You know, you, you know what? I will say, I think I, I think I said this before ages ago when you, the first time you said that to me years ago, is that uh, a, a friend of mine who I actually haven't seen in a while. How are you, Justin, if you're listening? Um, but he said his first crush when he was a kid was Wally Cleaver. So, hey, you know, there Go are folks out there who, you got the Wally Cleaver voice, they're going to tune in. They are. <laughs> they're tuning in. In mass, in mass, I can't keep. <laughs> Amanda away. Reyes has has the Wally Cleaver voice. Do it. Yes, I can't keep him away. Anyway, so I just want to thank yes. Chris for sending that. That was really thank really you, Chris. Thank you. I really feel like maybe we should just put him and Adam's feedback at the beginning and just call it a day. So we have two more pieces of feedback. Um, Excellent. We we heard from our friend Jack DVD seventy eight from Twitter. Um, and he wrote, uh, mazes and monsters or how to attend college and, f- and fit a bigger bed in your dorm, <laughs> which is only going to scare <laughs> away your gra- your gal. Just have to talk about the ending. It's just so sad because for a moment you're expecting that Robbie may be pulling your leg in a way that you would expect Tom Hanks to do. I really wasn't mm. expecting the plot to go where it did at all. Loved all of the actors and was shocked no one got predictably beat up for their love of the game. They all seem to be popular and even throw Hollywood themed parties. Oh yeah, we forgot to talk about JJ's awesome parties. They were incredible i loved all the dancing they did because the doors were so tiny but there was always like three or four people that were going to cut a rug no matter what yes and it was really fun they look like pretty good college parties and yeah and it's uh the one guy shows up with a frankenstein monster mask and looks jj and says who are you i'm noel coward and he just noel coward and he pulls the frankenstein mask over his head that was that was our friend from skullduggery Oh, was it? Okay. Yes, yes. I remember because uh, he's also really cute. Well, that happens a lot in Mazes and Monsters. <laughs> it does. They're all adorable. Everybody. I don't. I don't think we we don't get as much focus on the guy and go guys and go ask Alice. Only the um only uh Shatner Gri- uh, Griffith and the um the guy with the receding hairline. Yeah, yeah. It's not the same. But anyway, Jack goes on. Go ask Alice. Congratulations, Alice. You wore the wrong clothes. You had what job? Choose between a dress or jeans for your first day at your new school. Luckily, she found a friend in Beth. Together, they keep, they keep it up with their schoolwork, stay out of trouble, and watch their weight. But it ain't easy. I was thrown mm. with Shatner because I knew he was in the movie but kept wondering when he might show up. I didn't recognize him until probably the second <laughs> yes. scene he was in, see? Sometimes yeah. I'm oblivious, but he certainly disappeared into his character. This scene may already be discussed mm-hmm. in the episode, but how did everyone read the scene in which Alice peeks through the door, oh yeah, at her dealer boyfriend and sees what he 
what I thought was a gal and a guy, but two guys come to the door after Alice throws um, some pills at them and bolts. I guess it was meant either that guys go both ways. Hold on, I have to flip the page here. Or just, oh, fuck, sorry. Or just have orgies or, question mark. Yeah, we did talk about that. I don't know if there's anything else to say. I think it's kind of like leaves it open to to interpret any of those. Yeah, it's it seem yeah, it's one thing the first time you see it. It seems to be uh, something else that might be become legion uh, yeah. the second time you see it. <laughs> yeah, that's so. actually something I really like about the film. Um, some of that stuff, the imagery is just really like uh, throws you they, off. They they sneak it. They sneak it. It's it, they really sneak it in. I mean, it's it's like the fact that this is seventy three. You wouldn't, you know, you it's, it's they. Yeah, it, it's funny. The more we talk about it, the more I appreciate what I watched that I didn't quite appreciate. Well, now that ending still gets me. But what I didn't okay. quite appreciate what, what I watched when I first – the second time I watched yeah. it, the first time I got it. Well, it definitely, well, it definitely has some really interesting moments. Um, but Jack goes on. That incident for some – oh, that incident for some odd reason causes Alice and her friend to run away from home where Alice runs into Mackenzie Phillips who is a natural in a brief scene. I love that what the fuck moment when Alice is having a crazy acid flashback that features a bizarre older couple, David Lynchian couple, who has Alice yes. and her friend glammed up like pretty baby and groveling on the floor like the scene from Sallow. Uh, the babysitting scene is crazy when Jan yes. barges in high as a kite. The second time we see her babysitting, I assume Jan spiked her soda. That's what I thought too. Babysitting is yes. dangerous. The actress who plays Alice <laughs> is great, fully believable. I like that scene with Andy Griffith who helps send her in the right direction, but her parents just don't understand and, in my opinion, fail to hear her ultimately or to help her. Um, like when Alice and Beth reconciled their friendship. Oh, I liked when uh, Alice and Beth reconciled their friendship. And even though Joel seemed a bit older than Alice, he was very good to her, and I would have liked to have seen a happier ending with them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we agree with all of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We didn't talk about the whether or not who dosed her soda, but, yeah, I assumed it was the girl that had come to the house uh, earlier. I... I, th I thought so. I th uh, yeah, I thought she probably found some way to get in, and it's it's just a weird scene because, like, I, do do we fully say that she like opens the door and there's like a half drunk soda just sitting yeah. there? Yeah, no, and it's, it's weird just... because who does that? Who drinks yeah, somebody's exactly. half drunk soda? I could see if it was like a liter, you know what I mean? But it wasn't. Yes. It was a pop, yeah, like bottle. a liter or two liter, yeah, something like that. But it's actually like a, and because at the um. At the uh, the first party that Alice goes to when she's first drugged, they bring out like a tray of pretty much these exact same sodas, yes. and everyone grabs one. And I think hers might be drugged, or they slip her the drug somewhere around there. But it's like she sees one of these half filled, and it has like a cap on it that looks like it probably seals it off pretty good. But still. You don't know how long it. it well, who's like who's Bells has been drinking that freaking soda? You don't want it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like if if a couple has said we're leaving for the weekend. Please take care of our baby. All we have for you is a half half a soda that you know someone you don't know may have drunk out of. You know, it's 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 so weird that she chooses that soda. It's just like Alice. I by the end of the movie, I love you. That's why the freeze frame at the end kills me. But that choice is a bad drink the formula make yourself up another round of formula i'm yeah. sure the kid has it up. <laughs> yeah definitely. you know just uh, you suck on one thing of formula the baby will do another but it's just it's just a weird moment it's it's just because it's not like it's not like she's there's like a half a 
like a like a half a chicken or like um like you know like a yeah like like you said like half of a two liter or one liter oh. of, of soda or something. Dan, they yeah. dosed her chicken. <laughs> oh my god, these I people will like, stop at nothing. I feel no, I feel oh oh no, I was blood. Fre- have you seen Blood Freak? I haven't, but I have it. I have all these movies I haven't seen. No, 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 no. We got to go, though, Dan. We gotta, we're getting... Okay, late. let's get out of here, everyone. We're okay. not talking about Blood Freak. We... And I want to say, Jack, uh, thank you so much for recommending Paul Wendkos's, who I mentioned earlier, and I got his movie wrong, his theatrical film, Special Delivery. That's right. Jack's been doing some promotion for that. Our friend Sybil Lee Shep- did the commentary. Yes, I haven't listened to it yet, but Sybil Shepard, Bo Svensson, a lot of Sorel Brook, a lot of fun folks, super fun movie. I, I knew nothing about it. And you guys should, the, the Blu-ray is relatively cheap from Kino Lorber. I bought it. I watched it two nights ago. So much fun. So Yay. much fun. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jack. Thank you for everything. He's a really great guy. Um, yeah, oh, he, he really is, yeah. So, and we also heard from our good friend Shannon, who we know best as Wrestling Willpower <laughs> on Twitter. She wrote, hey, Amanda, remember that time you got me hooked on heroin? Oh, wait, not heroin. Marrow's Place. <laughs> anyway, it's true. I'm trying to get everybody watching it. I really enjoyed the episode you guys did with Bill Junkowski. I haven't listened to the last episode yet because I haven't had a chance to watch the movies. I decided to give the movies for the next episode a watch since I recognize quite a few names on the cast list and I figured I'm the type of weak-minded individual that propaganda films are supposed to work on. Go ask Alice. Okay. First of all, do people really start their diary entries with Dear Diary? Also, I find it very hard to believe she kept her diary while she was doing all those drugs, but writing isn't really my thing. So, the movie seemed like kind of nonsensical to me. I just constantly felt like it was skipping ahead. Like, what? Oh, is this where it's going now? They really packed a lot in there. William Shatner didn't have much to do, but I thought he looked cool with his mustache. I thought everyone was pretty good, really. The Andy Griffith scenes were probably my favorites, and that little flashback scene in there was creepy as hell. Again, that's a David Lynchian couple Jack referred to. Um, also, the hospital scene with the doctor was quite an emotional roller coaster because I started, I started out laughing at how silly she looked trying to drink with all those bandages, to thinking she'd given the baby LSD to relief that she didn't, uh, to eye rolling at the sappy parts. I wanted to give this movie the unimpressed Andy Griffith rating, but I was definitely entertained. Mazes and Monsters. I thought the first half was pretty dull, and I started looking stuff up on my phone about D&D and Moral Panic, which was pretty interesting. I liked Chris Makepeace's character, and I liked the scenes with Tom Hanks wandering around by himself. But then when they figured out where he was going to the Twin Towers to jump, it took a turn because all I could think about were people jumping to their deaths on 9-11. The ending was pretty downbeat, too, although I never really felt like the message of this game is dangerous and evil, bad things will happen to you if you play it, came through because it was pretty clear he was mentally ill. Then again, I'm not watching this in 1982. Okay, so... Uh, Anyway, thank you, Shannon, um, for that. Thank you. Yeah, you know, we didn't talk about the mental illness thing. That was another thing about the film that was so sad because his brother was obviously probably ill, too. Yeah. To take off like that. Yeah, and and it's it's the way they present it with, like, the the dad who seems to be pushing them and the mom who's drinking all the time. And the, the, the two brothers clearly snapped at some point. And, and, yeah, it's a very sad yeah. household. And so I think that adds to the tragedy at the end. Although the mom seems to kind of clean up her act a little for her son. You get, I get the impression at the end that yeah. she's kind of there for him. And I think she feels like she failed him. And she's doing her yeah. best to be a good mom now. Um, so. And if she... If she, if she needs to be the innkeeper's wife or whatever, she'll she'll do oh, what she has so to sad. do. He's got the little coin that keeps reappearing, and that's because they keep giving him his quarter back. Yes, it's so sweet. Oh yeah, oh. it's so uh, yeah. It's, 
it's it's like the ending is like if if you want to you know if if you want to bring your Dungeons and Dragons campaign to the saddest conclusion that that is the end of Mazes and Monsters is what it is it really is like with three three characters who are strong and one character who has been broken and you just t- you take the one character it's like um oh I'm trying to think I can't think of any right now but like um just just the movie where you have like a character who is about to die or or is Foxes. about to have something happen to them and yeah yeah and and you just say let's go one more ride and then the movie ends as you're driving away or something like yeah. that and I and and that's kind of how this is and well, it's I guess just it's, it's, it's like that but it's got you know it's just ugh. Whatever. It was yeah. too much. It was too much sadness this week for me. I had a rough. I yeah, had a rough I'm week, so. guys. Um, yeah, I, I have two. I have two. We both have, and this this is where the episode takes a weird turn. No, I'm kidding. We're done. We're done. <laughs> so anyway, that's all of our feedback. So we uh, can be reached on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. Or we can be on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. You can also come to our website, which is https colon forward slash forward slash. I don't know why it does that. TVMayhemPodcast.wordpress.com. I guess you can just put in TVMayhemPodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can email us at TVMayhemPodcast at gmail.com. I will say a couple people left comments on Facebook and Twitter, but I didn't have time to gather them. But they were like one sentence kind of it's so good things so i'm sorry if i didn't get to that i tried really hard i just it's been a really intense month for me um so next episode we are going back to the beach it's the summer yay we are living it and we are going to check out the hustler of muscle beach and zuma beach which was written by john carpenter Oh, yo, yes. Oh, I've been wanting to watch that for ages. Yeah, it's very good. Um, Hustler Muscle Beach, I've been dying to see. It's one I haven't seen yet. So um, I'm pretty excited about it. Also, Richard Hatch is in it, and that might be a nice time for us to do a little tribute to him because he oh, passed away yes, recently, please, and um, yes. he's wonderful. So um, so anyway, um, I don't have anything to talk about in terms of what I'm doing now because everything I've done hasn't been announced which is really annoying. Oh. So like, and because oh. this last month has been busy because I've been working and a lot of cool projects have come my way, but none of them have been announced. I will say that the last house on the left, Blu-ray got pushed oh. back a few days. So oh. I think it's coming out in, in June. So I've got, I've got a pre-order. Yeah. Right. Instead of May, I think it's coming out in June or maybe July. So what I would suggest you do if you've pre-ordered it or if you're interested in it and are wondering what the dates are, I would just go on Arrow's website um, because I didn't write them down. Uh, so that's about the only thing I think that's going on that people already know about. I can't. I did get um, an honorable mention at the Rondo Awards. Did I say that last time? Yay! I might have uh, mentioned that. I don't know if that. Ha- I don't know if that had happened the last time we did that. I think it did. I can't even remember oh, the last time. Say it again. Quarter. Say yeah. it again. I got an honorable mention at the Rondo Awards, and that was really exciting. So thank you to everybody who it's voted for me. It's a great freaking book. Yeah. Yeah, was, that was really exciting. Um, I, I don't. I can't remember. I mean, we recorded so long ago that I can't really figure out what's happening anymore. So I'll pass this over to you, Dan, because I know you do have news. <laughs> I, I do. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll start. I'll start with um, uh, on my website some Polish American guy reviews things. I have started the final season of BJ and the Bear which is why I knew what Murray Hamilton was up to, because he is showing up on there. So I just reviewed the first regular episode, the third season. Uh, there was a writer's strike in 1980 in the summer, which threw everything off. Um, and BJ and the Bear began with a two-hour episode in its third season, but I just reviewed the first one-hour one, The Fast and the Furious, with... 
Pamela Susan Shoup, who I adore. And um, so I did that. And then uh, podcast-wise, One Minute with Blood Like and Iced, I am on, at this moment, episode 68. We are 68 minutes into Blood Like and Ice. Things are getting really good. Um, they'll they'll calm down in a moment or two for Blood Like, but they'll go on for a few minutes extra with Iced. Um, then eventually Super Train episode 46 went up. We are on Green. We are Green Hornet. Kristen and I, uh, Green Hornet episode 14. My wife and I, Ellery Queen Mysteries episode 12. And the super fun Mitchell Hadley from It's About TV and I are talking episode two of oh, Bourbon Street. Yay! I love him. That's where. We're, he's he's so he's so much fun and we, it's so it's so great because we're in 1959, 1965, and 1976. So it's like it's super fun. Um, and then uh, let's see, yeah, you can get my first book still, Bleeding Skull, 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey is still on hardcover on Head Press. You look it up online, and you can get it on like Kindle and stuff. My second book, '80s Action Movies on the Cheap," is still available everywhere. And this is the big news: I have signed the contract. And I've written about the first 80 pages wow. of my. Well, I, I I I've been writing it very quickly. Um, my third book, which is the the tentative title, is "From Beverly Hills to Hooterville: Exploring Television's Henningverse." 1962 1971 oh, I love that title be, don't change it yeah it's, it's great it's I, I go through it starts off with sort of basic TV history a little bit of Paul Henning and then I basically go through all 666 episodes of which is fun of Hillbillies Junction and Green Acres yeah I love Petticoat Junction I mean I love all those shows but I oh, love it, Petticoat Junction oh yeah. uh, I well the fun thing is I um, I spent 14 days uh, watching all 36 episodes of the first season of The Hillbillies, wow. and I wrote I wrote um, almost 50 pages on those uh, 36 episodes. I've taken a few days off this weekend. I begin the second season of The Henningverse, which is the first se- second season of Hillbillies, and the first season of Junction. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be it's going to be. I'm hoping it'll be like a real thick book. Like the yeah. my, the Bleeding Skull book and the '80s book, they're not thick books. There, there's a lot in them. But I just want a book that you can like throw at someone, and if it hits them in the face, they fall backwards. Like these other two books, if you throw them at someone, they might be able to able to shrug it off. But that's what I want. So, so that's a third book, and I'm working on it right now, and I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited yeah. for you too. That'll be really great. Thank I'm you. so thank happy that worked yeah. out. Um, yeah, thank you. Cool. So that's what's happening with us. And always check out Nate on the Hysteria Continues. Um, yes. That's wonderful, too. So uh, that's it. So hopefully we'll be back way sooner than we were before. <laughs> I am I have a lot of stuff happening, but I think I should be able to do this once a month. And I guess I may or may not in the next month or so start the Trapper cast. Which oh, will, my gosh. Which will just be a mini-sode of Trapper John. I don't even know. I don't know when I'll do it. Look, I'll make an announcement on the social media stuff when I do. I just don't know when I'm going to have time, but they'll just be like 20-minute episodes. And, and you know, a few people told me not to do it. So, like, I will label them clearly so people who listen to the show that don't really give a shit about Trapper John won't accidentally, like, download it and start listening and be like, oh, she's going to talk about Dr. Riverside again. So I'll try to... I'll make it clear for everybody. So only the people who really want to yeah. listen to it can listen to it. And... And I would love to. I I am so hoping to be a guest occasionally <laughs> on the 
<laughs> Gonzo well, Gogo. Yeah, no, I was going to call it Gonzo Gogo, but you know, he's not on the full run of the series. True, yeah. So it's going to be the Trap Cast. Um, that's the title. Oh, the that's next. great. Oh my gosh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So hopefully, um, hopefully sometime this summer I'll have my first episode, which will be longer than the other ones, and then I'll just do like little mini-sodes about it. So I don't even know why I said that, but anyway, that might happen. <laughs> no. I'll let you know when it does. Yeah. I'm <laughs> And I, I, I uh, one more thing. I, I have been pitching for the past year and a half, rocking all week with you, the Happy Days podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which I actually literally began the moment I signed the contract for the book, and suddenly I was like, I, I so it will be delayed some. I have Aww. started rock the Happy Days podcast because I, I, I know I can get you for the post Richie seasons. Oh yeah, but I haven't. So, but but the pre-Richie seasons, apart from certain episodes, pre-Richie is going to be. Is there life before Richie? No, it's, <laughs> it's American graffiti. No, no, that that's not real. Um, no, uh, I'm sorry, pre Pope. Just the um, Richie with seasons. Ri with Richie, with Richie. Yes, um, I haven't been able to really get anyone, so I'm trying to. I can do it really quick. I, I think it's um, it's with having signed the book contract it's taken a little longer but i hope folks within the next few months to start rocking all week with you i Yay, hope that would be great Pick okay cool off. so just just keep an eye on everything and we'll be back next month to go to the beach so grab your bikinis and your beach balls and your suntan lotion uh, because we're not going to use sunscreen we, it was the 80s we're not going to use sunscreen oh no, no forget that get your band of soleil and let's join us come on let's do it <laughs> and there will be there will be sand everywhere. You're going to love it, guys. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Where the road.